Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether policy to shape science advocacy is more or less impactful than advocacy to shape science policy. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Last year, I heard Johannes Akva on another show and knew very quickly that he was the person I wanted to interview next on climate change. He just raised so many important considerations that I'd never thought about before, one after another, and then made a pretty good go at figuring out what concretely they might imply. And that's just as well, because as the lead climate researcher at Founders Pledge, he's tasked with making substantial grants with the goal of tackling climate change most effectively. Today, we talk about why climate philanthropists shouldn't try to minimize expected carbon emissions, why the emissions reductions you achieve in the near term are probably negatively correlated with your actual true impact, whether it makes more sense to focus on government policy or advocacy or direct deployment, decarbonizing aviation, as well as shipping, concrete and agriculture, clean energy technologies like super hot rock geothermal, nuclear fusion and carbon capture and storage, what's most weird about how humanity has tried to stop climate change so far, where climate philanthropy is currently most concentrated and what's strange about that, the future scenarios in which emissions end up being far higher than is currently expected, and plenty more besides. Johannes and Founders Pledge wanted you all to know going in that they are currently hiring researchers for their climate-focused grant-making program. They're open to people at varying levels of experience that are keen to work on climate with an impact-focused perspective, pushing the research agenda that Johannes and I are about to talk about and turning it into action via grant-making. I'll say a little bit more about that in the outro. All right, without further ado, I bring you Johannes Akva. Today, I'm speaking with Johannes Akva. Johannes is currently the Climate Research Lead at Founders Pledge, where he has been since 2019, and where he advises major philanthropists on how they can get the biggest bang for buck with their climate change-focused giving. Over there, he manages the Founders Pledge Climate Fund, which is giving what we can's top suggestion for our climate-focused giving. Before that, he was a project manager at the International Carbon Action Partnership and Adelphi, working on carbon pricing and innovation policy. And long before that, he studied a range of social sciences with the goal of understanding what climate policies get adopted and why at Jacobs University, Rijksuniversiteit Groningen, and the University of Chicago. He's been thinking about effective altruism and climate since 2015, when he first discovered the ideas and for the first time had to justify to people why it was that he was working on climate change. And he's been a lifelong environmentalist ever since getting excited about saving these Siberian tigers as a kindergartner. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Johannes. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Rob. And uh, great Dutch pronunciation on the on the Rijks University. That's, that's always hard. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not so easy to say Kronigan, but yeah. I have the benefit of a, of a Dutch mother and having visited Kronigan, so okay. yes, yes, <laughs> it would be, but... be embarrassing if I, if I, if I couldn't do it. Yeah. All right, yeah, I, I hope we'll get to talk about the most promising places to look for climate-focused giving opportunities and what concrete suggestions you make to philanthropists. But first, in brief, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, cool. And I'm going to talk about uh, what me and what my team uh, are working on, so very much kind of like uh, the whole team, not only me because we're, we're growing right now and kind of yeah doing lots of different things. In principle, what we're trying to do or trying to be is so like a research-based grant-making program and kind of on climate trying to find the best kind of opportunities with an effective ultras prioritization. With this kind of agenda, we're kind of doing four or five things all the time. And right now we're kind of looking into research prioritization, which is really about 
thinking about because we'll talk about this more like climate is characterized by lots of different uncertainties kind of trying to understand what are the most action relevant uncertainties that we should actually prioritize reducing so that's one thing we're doing which is really just important in terms of like guiding ourselves because there isn't really a clear kind of laid out methodology to do this then we're kind of doing somewhat more concretely in like some data work which is kind of understanding where climate philanthropy has been growing which kind of sectors which kind of technologies have been growing and that's obviously really important if you think about additionality and kind of acting well in a crowded space and then kind of the other kind of this kind of we're looking at combining different data sets to kind of understand where are the effectable emissions actually at so like kind of not only like where are future emissions at i think that's pretty clear that like the world regions where they're going to be but like where are those emissions that we can like plausibly reduce with different kind of interventions so understanding that those are kind of the more fundamental parts. And then we're kind of obviously um, at any given point, we're doing grant making. So we've just finished a grant investigation into a grant in China. So yeah, obviously that's kind of turning research into action. And so obviously important for that reason. And we're doing stuff on kind of better characterizing theories of change around innovation advocacy, which is, I guess, important to better understand both compare different interventions on in this space, but also kind of compare innovation advocacy to other theories of change and other interventions. Hey everyone, Rob here. Savvy listeners will have noticed that we just muted the name of the project that Johan has mentioned. Uh, and we're going to do that when the name comes up a couple more times later in the conversation. That's just because that grant, it turns out, is still in the works and would rather wait until it's complete to publicly announce the project. But we will stick up a link to that announcement on the blog post with the episode uh, whenever it does actually go out. Okay, back to the interview. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a lot of things that we're going to get to uh, over the next uh, couple of hours. I guess just a note for listeners who are, who are wondering uh, what we're going to be focused on. A lot of uh, listeners uh, wrote in with questions uh, focused on the issue of, you know, how serious a risk is climate change uh, relative to other risks that are out there, kind of uh, where, where does climate change fall in the, in the scheme of all uh, global problems? And at the end of the interview, we are going to have some questions about that. But I feel like that topic has been addressed a lot elsewhere, including in a previous interview that we did, which, which we'll link to. And it's not uh, Johanna's main area of research. So today we're largely going to focus on what Johannes and, and his team think are the most impactful things to do, taken as a given that someone wants to focus on reducing the expected uh, damage uh, by climate change, which is what they've been looking into for many years. Um, so before we spend a lot of time walking through all of that reasoning and the implications, I think it would be good to, to tease the audience with some conclusions. What's a recent grant that you've made and what activities was it intended to fund? Yeah, so like the most recent grant, and we're just in the process of finalizing this, is actually a grant to in China. And we've been funding a project there that's kind of focusing on three things. One of them is kind of coal repowering and kind of finding a solution to repower coal plants with advanced heat sources, either nuclear or advanced geothermal. So like that's something we're very excited about because it kind of deals with a really, really large problem in global emissions, which is the existence of a lot of very new coal plants in Asia. So like that are not plausibly just like retired, even if renewables are cheap. So, yeah, I, I'd never heard this term uh, repowering. Uh, so this is where I guess you have this problem that there are a whole lot of coal plants that have been built already or are still being built and they're standing there and it's, people are going to be reluctant to completely shut them down and waste this thing that they've constructed. So repowering is where you take the same facility, the same big building, and you try to get it to generate electricity a different way other than, than using coal. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Right. So the reason that's so important is because I think, as you mentioned, like essentially Starting 2000, China built a lot of coal over a decade, right? And like, so and like not only China, India, Indonesia, etc. So like, there's lots of existing coal capacity that is very young in Europe or in the US. Kind of like the debates that we are having about early retiring coal are kind of very different because our plants are very old, but like plants there are very young. So like, 
it would be extremely costly to retire them. It would also kind of mean a lot of kind of infrastructure would be wasted, et cetera. So the idea of repowering is exactly that. It's essentially you're replacing the heat source, right? So like instead of kind of generating electricity for burning coal, you either do it through like uh, nuclear fission or uh, advanced geothermal or fusion, the fusion where it became a thing, right? So you're replacing this and you're having like lots of kind of cost-saving benefits there, kind of using existing infrastructure you're also having really big political or political economic benefits there because most people that are kind of used to working in the plant can still work there. You need to add a couple of nuclear engineers, et cetera. But like overall, like this seems like a promising mm. solution and one that has been like really been under, underfunded or off the radar until like two or three years ago, essentially. Okay, right. Yeah. What's another grant? Yeah. So I think another grant I'm kind of curious to to talk about. This is not a recent grant, but kind of the results have been recent. So like essentially after the Biden election, we made two um, large grants, one to the Clean Air Task Force, kind of focused on neglected decarbonization technologies, and one to Carbon 180, uh, which kind of focused on carbon removal. So we get, like made two large grants to them, kind of with the goal to influence what, what was the standard cost to build back better. So like the big kind of infrastructure spending bills with the big climate component. Mm. And obviously last summer those bills passed, and I think yeah, we were really happy about the fact that those bills turned out in a way that's much more technology inclusive kind of focused on global decarbonization than than it might have been otherwise so i think that's kind of something we've been really excited about kind of for the first time with the climate fund the climate fund is now two years old essentially being able to kind of see results point to something that's that's been successful yeah so so the grant there was to the clean air task force to advocate for particular priorities within this broader climate change bill uh things that they thought would be particularly useful is that right yeah, things that they and we thought would be particularly useful. Yes, the Clean Air Task Force was one part of the grant. The other part of the grant was uh, Carbon 180. So we're essentially covering both neglected decarbonization technologies, so like for reducing emissions, as well as kind of um, sucking kind of carbon out of the air, carbon removal, which um, has been booming recently, but kind of was still quite neglected when we made that grant in 2020. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is there a third grant that you'd be interested to share? Yeah, so like we made a whole bunch of grants kind of focused on this, like kind of a series of grants on this on this repowering thing. So I think we made two other grants kind of in that same way, like kind of one kind of focused on different emerging economies, so well, Indonesia, China, India, et cetera, kind of on, uh, exploring that. And then we made, um, I think, so like to Coast Consulting. And we also made grants in this main kind of to Terra Praxis. They're kind of following a different kind of idea. It's also about repowering, but it's kind of a more high-tech innovation version and yeah, they've now partnering with Microsoft on this and kind of building a consortium, which is like really impressive. So like those are essentially two or three people. There used to be two or three people when we started funding. Yeah, now they're having kind of a consortium with Schneider Electric, Microsoft, et cetera. And like, yeah, so that's, I think, good example of like the power of supporting small organizations and kind of investing early. In. Getting something off the ground that otherwise might not exist. Yeah. Okay, so I guess getting to the reasoning now and, and zooming out a bit, it'll be, I think, really useful to lay out, I guess, what you and your team see as a few of the most important like background facts or dynamics going on uh, around climate change and, 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 and our response, uh, the, the kind of background facts that most end up influencing your thinking. Yes, yeah, what's one of those that you would really like to draw people's attention to? Yeah, so there are a couple because like, I think the first thing, like when people come to climate, it's like, it's a really confusing space because what we're talking about here is like, we're talking about a century long problem. We're talking about four or five kind of uncertain complex systems leveled on top of each other, right? Like socio-technical systems, the climate system, technology, how emerging economies grow. So like a lot of complexity there. And like, I guess what we're trying to do is like understanding like what are kind of the most important mechanisms to understand. I think 
one thing that I find quite useful to just like frame the overall challenge is kind of frame it as like essentially a competition between two really strong trajectory shaping mechanisms. And we've already talked about both of these mechanisms, but like the first one is kind of like innovation and like technological change towards low carbon technology. Hmm. Like we've, we've seen this with solar, right? Where like essentially the investment of Germany and California, a couple of other small countries, like essentially completely transformed the global picture for solar. So like this is kind of very trajectory changing in the sense that there were like a couple of countries over a relatively short period of time that fundamentally changed the trajectory of like solar over the century. And like by that kind of transformed mm. the emission trajectory of climate quite fundamentally. So that's kind of one piece. And we've seen similar things with electric cars, with wind, etc. The other kind of big mechanism is kind of a little bit competing with that, and that's kind of carbon lock-in, which is this idea that I think we already alluded to earlier. If you're kind of having uh, long-lived assets or infrastructures, stuff like coal plants, steel plants, but also kind of transmission infrastructure for electricity, et cetera, so like you're often having investments that will kind of have consequences for decades and will kind of commit emissions for decades if there isn't retrofitting, et cetera. And those are the kind of two mechanisms that I think if you kind of understand them like and kind of how they're playing out like you feel a fairly useful way to kind of think about what are the most important mechanisms so it's kind of a race between i guess on the one hand the clean energy generation is getting cheaper and on the other hand we're kind of pre-committing now to continue using coal and uh, emitting lots of carbon for decades to come because we're building all of this infrastructure that will make it in future extremely cheap to continue to do that basically and kind of the question is which which of these effects is going to win and uh, we want to like try to help the former and uh, reduce the latter effect yeah that's exactly right yeah and both of these kind of dynamics have this like i guess this characteristic that they're like leverage points right that they're kind of moments mm -hmm. in time that can have a large impact through time and space those decisions related to those two are much more important than most other decisions is there another important force that, that, that people should have in mind so Another force, I mean, like there's kind of a force on top of this was obviously like the political response and like how kind of the norms shift around climate, right? We've seen this very clearly, how essentially rich industrialized countries, like the conversation on climate has really transformed over the last uh, hmm. five or six years. So um, yeah, I think that's kind of something else, essentially if we're kind of locking in kind of the idea of, of net zero and kind of really strong pressure, climate policy pressure. So I think that's kind of another mechanism there as well. I think a lot of people have suggested, or at least my impression has been that that is because renewable energy has gotten so much cheaper, such that it doesn't seem like such an expense now to reduce emissions. So maybe is the general phenomenon that as these technologies become cheaper, the politics of the issue might continue to change uh, as there's bigger industries that are, that are focused on the technologies that are now economically viable, and it just doesn't seem so costly to prevent climate change anymore. Yeah. So I think that's definitely a big driver of it. And I think like you'll probably have to base, right? Because like, this is one of those things where, okay, we only have like one world history to observe. So like <laughs> yeah. we have a lot of room for interpretation. Um, I guess my take on this is like a lot of the early investments in renewables, which were actually not motivated by climate change, funnily enough, but like the kind of those kind of driving the cost reductions were obviously like super important and like making things politically more feasible. But yeah, I think ultimately technology cost is like often kind of the driver of making things more politically feasible. Yeah. A really common theme in a lot of your writing and other interviews is that renewable energy and energy efficiency loom really large in our current investments uh, to stop climate change. Why do you think that they've been so much more successful maybe than other ways that we could have tried to tackle the issue? Yeah, so I think for renewable energy, it is very clear that a large part of the reason that renewables are cheap now 
is that essentially renewable is kind of a very popular with a certain constituency. So if we kind of think about like the emergence of like modern environmentalism in the late 60s to early 70s and ideas of like small scale social organization, small is beautiful, local distributed systems, etc. Like this is something that like renewables play with well, that nuclear and coal play with poorly. The really large popularity of solar and wind has played to a huge role in kind of making it possible that we had like extremely high like subsidy policies in the 90s and in the early 2000s that kind of drove the technology cost down there. So I think that's really a reflection of like how the issue was framed. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of people, including me, I would, would listen to that and think, might it not just be the case that wind and solar were very promising te- technologies from the outset and they always had the potential to get as cheap as they are now. And so it was just sensible investments in the areas that had the most potential and the most likely cost decreases that they caused people to focus on them rather than alternatives. That seems really wrong to me uh, in the sense that I think if we think about different energy technologies and like which energy technologies would be like optimal from a, like a different standpoints. Like I think you would not usually come out as like intermittent renewables being like the optimal form of generating energy, right? I guess I'm much more of the view that essentially technological change is essentially the function of sustained public support, which is essentially the function of political dynamics. And if like history would have played out differently, like we could have like cheap nuclear fission now or maybe we could have fusion right now i I think that that seems more true to me kind of based on what i read about like political culture and kind of looking at those things and like kind of also looking at like the fact that like solar and wind are cheap now marginal cost wise but they're very far from an optimal energy technology because of the intermittency not only intermittency, also like energy density on space requirements etc right so they're, Hmm. they're the optimal response towards decentralized production and like if you're kind of having a societal slash ideological preference for decentralized production than like renewables, I guess, look better than like large scale on the clear, for example. Okay. Yeah. What are some of the other kind of striking things about humanity on the whole has responded to climate change and, and where we where we put our efforts now and where we don't? I think up until like five years ago or so, right? Like before like the broader public really paid attention to climate, right? When like climate was like this environmentalist issue and then kind of became the top environmentalist issue. And then kind of now over the last five years, maybe like wider society has been paying more attention it's like lots of kind of things that seem very like prominent in our climate discussion i think are a reflection of that right the focus on renewables is i think also like sometimes the, the large degree of moralizing in the debate right like focusing on your lifestyle emissions or focusing on cleaning up your backyard at least in many countries especially in europe kind of somewhat critical attitude towards solving the problem through innovation etc like so, so like there are kind of lots of these ideas etc that are kind of reflective of like how, how this issue has like come about and like which kind of cultural force has been dominant in shaping the issue and like just to be very clear like and don't want to like bash like environmentalists like i'm an environmentalist myself i'm just <laughs> saying like if you're looking at an issue that is kind of dominated by a particular constituency like you, you're importing the biases of that constituency um and that's pretty much what has happened Yes, yeah, so you mentioned a few different things there. Uh, one of them was, yeah, focus on lifestyle change. And I suppose that, that that's how I often encountered climate change discussion, at least when I was a, a teenager or at college, was about changing the amount of emissions that you have by not driving a car or not taking flights. It sounds like you're, you're, you're not, too, not too keen on that <laughs> as, a, as, as, a, as, a, as a key focus uh, for, for advocacy. Why is that? So, I mean, that's also how I grew up, right? So, like, I literally grew up with this idea of, like, I need to save water because otherwise the water will run out, like, wasn't climate but like those kind of things mm-hmm. right or like i never got a driving license for climate reasons and all of these things well i think 
it's not so much that I'm not a fan of this. I think like as soon as it kind of only a little bit kind of crowds out your political action, it's not the thing to focus on. I think that's the way I would put it. So like I'm doing a lot of those lifestyle changes myself, but I think ultimately political action in the broader sense is like where essentially everyone listening to this can have more impact. And this can be different things, right? This can be voting, this can be protesting, writing your senator. Or, I mean, for me, like donating is really a form of political action as well. Ultimately, the reason for that is because what you can do for your lifestyle changes, even when you're in the US, which is kind of the highest per capita emitting rich country, your emissions are something like 10 tons per year. So like you can maybe reduce this a little bit, but like ultimately, like the most you could do is kind of reduce that. And compared to other things, like compared to other changes you can induce, this is just not that significant. And that's also not how we would solve any other kind of issue. Like we would not solve like crime with saying everyone should just not commit crime, right? We're like, that's also part of it. (laughs) And we're also having a police and like, we're we're building a public response to this, right? I mean, just, just to show like that framing matters. I think it's kind of useful to think about like, how do we think about other problems? And like for other kind of large social problems, we would never kind of think we're solving them through like billions of people acting, like collaborating on kind of virtuous actions every day. Like this is just not, not a mode for how we solve other problems. Your point there is, a great effort, you could reduce your personal emissions by 20%, which I guess would be, you know, uh, two tons in the United States. But really what we need to do is reduce them 100% and reduce them 100% within some reasonable amount of time. And it's not the case that people are just going to decide to stop consuming any resources or using any energy at all. So kind of, it strongly implies that the only way that you could uh, solve the issue is to figure out how to make a lot of energy without carbon emissions. And so basically it just depends on whether we can do that or not. And, you know, someone you know, using their air conditioner less is not really very here nor there in the, in, the, in the big historical picture. Yeah, I think that's right, right? And like, I mean, this is not about not doing it. It's more like when I see advertisements like that kind of very much emphasize this, like that's kind mm-hmm. of something that's, that makes me like mad because it's essentially kind of, <laughs> I think that the carbon footprint, if I understand this correctly, was also invented by a fossil fuel company, kind of essentially kind of playing back the problem to like individual consumption. Do you think it's a bit of a scheme by people who would rather see society as a whole do less to just say, well, it's up to you personally to not drive a car and that's where it ends? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a scheme. It's not only like kind of fossil fuel, it's also kind of, the, I guess, the environmentalist ethic, like which is about kind of reducing your own consumption, treading lightly on the earth, etc. I think there's something else there, which is about not appreciating how different the rest of the world is or like how kind of the average humor lives at this point in time. Like Hmm. I think in general, like with energy efficiency or demand reduction, lifestyle changes, all of those things would look a lot better on cost effectiveness if like most of the world was like rich and essentially wasting energy like we do. But I mean, the average human now on this planet has almost uh, no energy. so, So I think that's kind of something that's not really widely appreciated. So there's just, yeah, it's not really possible for them to reduce their energy consumption because they're on such a tight energy budget to start with. If your overall kind of big picture historical take is that we need to figure out how to generate lots of energy without carbon emissions or without greenhouse gas emissions, and kind of everything will just turn on whether we can do that. Does that mean that almost all of the grants that you make or almost all of the changes that you're trying to make are going to pass through some sort of science or you know innovation R&D stage in order to make that happen? Is that always going to be a part of the theory of change of the grants that you make? No, absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> well, why is that? Yeah. So like the reason for that is because it's about, well, what we do is like we're thinking on the margin, right? So like we're trying to advise people, what should they do to have the biggest additional impact? And there, there's two ways, I think, in which kind of science and innovation accelerating this could like 
be not necessary. I think like the first way would be like, okay, let's say we're already kind of on a trajectory where like innovation patterns are close to the maximal speed, or at least it's kind of not very effectable anymore. So I think that's kind of something we should think about. And the other one is kind of, if you're kind of saying, okay, societally, this is not true. You could still think like philanthropically in terms of organizations you can fund. And it's true that there's essentially no additional room for funding or no additional organizations that like should exist kind of to accelerate this process. So like those mm-hmm. are kind of uncertainties to consider. I think my current view is at this point still that, that innovation advocacy is like probably one of the most promising things we can do. Mm. But with both lots of progress, lots of policy progress, I've already mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill in the US and the European Green Deal in, the, in Europe and like also kind of a much stronger kind of innovation philanthropy, innovation climate philanthropy, like Breakthrough Energy in particular, Bill Gates' philanthropic effort. So I think it's becoming much more of an open question than like five years ago. I think five years ago, it seemed pretty obvious that this is where you should act on the margin. But like right now, it's kind of requiring more research. That's what I've, I was talking about in the beginning, kind of where we're trying to make more systematic comparisons between like an additional innovation advocacy and kind of engaging with carbon lock-in, for example. Yeah. That reminds me, you said earlier that innovation was kind of a bit controversial among people focused on climate change, which I guess uh, I'm, I, guess, I suppose I'm not up with the fashion. <laughs> I don't realize that that is controversial. I suppose when I was more involved in that, uh, in, in climate change related things uh, at university, people seem to often be quite into, you know, science, uh, R&D on solar and wind and so on. Is this a German thing? Uh, like among who is innovation controversial? It's not a German thing. I think it's a dynamic that plays out in most places, I would, I would think most places I kind of follow closely anyway. And I think what happens is that the political right has always kind of been talking about innovation and it's kind of often not in good faith, but rather more as a delay tactic, or that's certainly how it kind of has been perceived on the political left. Hmm. So you're kind of ending up in a situation where the political right kind of talks about innovation, but doesn't really want to act or doesn't really want to kind of get really engaged on climate. And the political left is really engaged on climate, but doesn't really want to do innovation are kind of skeptical of this as a response hmm. and yeah so we're kind of ending up in the space where like innovation kind of has a bit of a bad rep saying for the wrong reason because like we should actually be very excited about like a credible serious innovation effort like that's one of the most powerful things or the most powerful thing any single country uh, can do to kind of change the trajectory okay yeah yeah We'll come back to kind of, yeah, direct spending versus innovation versus politics and advocacy uh, later on. But I guess now I wanted to turn to one of the the coolest ideas that I encountered listening to your interviews. One of the ones where I was like hitting myself on the head thinking I really should have thought of that before, but I hadn't at all, which is this this question of kind of hedging and, and risk management across different possible climate change scenarios. So it's one thing that you've noticed that I've ended up putting a lot of weight on in your analysis is that it turns out that if you want to reduce the expected damage done by climate change, potentially what you want to do is quite different than maximize the reduction in uh, expected greenhouse gas emissions that you generate. Can you explain the, the, the logic behind how those two things come apart? Yeah. So I guess like first, it would seem like totally reasonable. And that was my first idea as well, right? Like the goal is to maximize emission reductions because that seems like the obvious thing to optimize for. But I think the most clear or like a robust finding, I guess, we have on climate damage is that climate damage is like very nonlinear in expectation, which means that like a world of three degrees of warming is kind of much worse and twice as bad than a world of 1.5 degrees. And like it kind of gets worse, like six degrees is much worse and twice as bad than three degrees. The way that economists usually talk about this is like saying, well, the social cost of carbon is different, right? Because the social cost of carbon is always contingent on a given 
emissions trajectory. Mm. And that means that fundamentally like avoiding a ton of carbon and like a particularly bad future, it can be like orders of magnitude more important than kind of avoiding a ton of carbon in like a very benign future. So it's kind of this nonlinear damage structure that kind of breaks this at the first instance. And then kind of where it really kind of becomes action relevant, because right now it's kind of fairly academic, becomes action relevant as soon as we think we know something about like what correlates with bad futures. So if we kind of know right now, for example, at Zika House Farther, the climate scientist has said like, we're not in a like four degrees worlds where like renewables have succeeded beyond expectation, right? Like those two things do not go together. Hmm. So we know if we're kind of in a high damaging future or we know in a like, or probabilistically know, like we have like evidence that something is very likely that like intermittent renewables must have failed in some way, right? And that kind of tells us something about actions we can take that are particularly valuable in those worlds, for example, investing in other energy sources such as advanced nuclear, etc. Yeah, I see. So the logic is that each degree of warming is worse than the last and potentially by quite a large margin because we're getting further and further away from what humanity is familiar with and the change is happening more rapidly. So, you know, going from zero degrees of warming to one, you know, maybe humanity can handle that reasonably well in the scheme of things. But going from five degrees of warming to six is potentially, you know, a a massive problem, uh, much, much worse. Yeah. And so... All I've seen, well, you'd much rather, you know, reduce a million tons of emissions in the hypothetical scenario where we're at six degrees of warming than one where we're at one or two degrees of warming. And so, for example, with the renewables, if it's the case that solar and wind are just going to smash it out of the park and massively reduce emissions and we're just going to electrify transport and use renewables to, to generate, if, if that's the you know future scenario that we're in, then like it doesn't matter so much because that means that we're going to be on a low emissions trajectory and a low level of climate change. So really what you want to do or like one approach you could take is to try to imagine what are the scenarios where emissions end up being really high and there's, there's really high levels of warming and what could we do to reduce emissions in those cases? Is, is that basically it? Yeah, that's basically it. And I think just to give an analogy from, I think, another cause area, right? So if we kind of think about, for example, if you think about advanced artificial intelligence, I mean, I guess there are some futures where like AGI is inherently safe, but that's certainly like not the focus of our effort to reduce AGI risk, right? And that's kind of the analogous case where like there there are certainly worlds like, well, renewables, like we self-intermittency, all of these things are easy, et cetera. And like we've maybe wasted a little bit of money on hedgy climate philanthropy, like, but we should be very happy about that because like that is much better than like the opposite, mm-hmm. which is kind of piling on to the mainstream response and kind of not being prepared for like failure. Yeah, again, buying insurance against worst case scenarios. That's the one way that you could try to get an edge. You think that this is one of the most important factors to think about as a new climate philanthropist today. Can you explain why this is such a big deal rather than just kind of, you know, one factor among many? I mean, I think it is one factor among many. I wouldn't claim it's like the most important one. I think it's kind of generally the one that like people think about least. Hmm. And I think there's a couple of reasons. So like, that are broadly about neglectedness and neglectedness in a cognitive sense. So if we look at the climate discussion right now, it is very dominated by kind of talking about two degrees, how can we close the gap from where we are right now, which is something like going to 2.5 to 2, or like how can we reduce the gap from 2 to 1.5 degrees. So this is kind of where almost all of the discussion is focused on. Hmm. And also like philanthropy is focused on. So like the reports published that are like kind of evaluating actions by how much of the gap are they closing, et cetera. So like it's a very, very strong mental focus on this. So in that sense, this kind of leads to actions that are kind of risk aware to be like underprioritized because like it's often, very often kind of this case of like, let's think about how do we get to a very 
good world or kind of a much better world. So I think that's the reason why it's important. Another reason why it's important is because essentially we're in a really high uncertainty situation. So like thinking carefully about like how these different uncertainties relate to each other is I think one of the best ways to kind of take good action, even though we're like in a really uncertain space. And then for example, saying, okay, we're uncertain about how far renewables will go. We're uncertain about many other things, but we kind of do know something about how those things relate to kind of the world or the damage we should care most about kind of actually gives, gives us a lot of leverage, even if we kind of have large uncertainties that we cannot reduce or not reduce on plausible timelines. Okay, so we've got uncertainty about a ton of different things, and, and it's going to be really hard to resolve those uncertainties. So we've got uncertainty about how many emissions we're going to generate, and then we have uncertainty about how the climate will respond to those emissions. And then we've got uncertainty about how that change in temperature is going to actually affect us and how much we can adapt to it. And it seems like there's not a whole ton that we can do to, <laughs> to figure out exactly which scenario we're in. And there's a very wide range of possible scenarios. And so we kind of just have to work around that as a background fact. Do we have a sense of how much worse each extra degree of warming is? Like, you know, how much worse is it to go from, you know, four to five degrees rather than from three to four degrees? So there's fairly little agreement on that, right? I mean, obviously it's like essentially predicting very much outside of the window that we're at. And there's also like debates on like what's the relevant evidence or how do you measure this? So I think there's little consensus kind of already in the published IPCC literature. So you can kind of see like lots of different curves most of those curves, like the IPCC also states, like they have high confidence in this nonlinear shape. So like, like that kind of seems like relatively clear, but like the exact kind of curvature, I think is like very much not clear. I also think one issue that's really important here is, so like it's, it's, it's very closely related to ethical assumptions that you make. So like, especially if you're like you're a long-termist, right? If you kind of say, okay, all future lives, potential lives kind of matter morally to the same degree that existing lives, then like the damage function or like how should probably be like extremely, extremely nonlinear because like essentially indirect existential risk from climate, is, at least to me, does not seem very plausible on like one or two degrees. I think it's kind of hmm. something we might be talking about at like four or five degrees. Yeah. So it's most important to, to, to focus the philanthropy on, on helping in scenarios where the incremental damage uh, is particularly high. One scenario that we imagine for that is uh, one where it turns out that it's really hard to integrate solar and wind into the grid and generate most electricity that way. Are there any other scenarios that people should have in mind for, for how things could go really wrong? Yeah, so I think like the ones that we know, quote unquote, know, right? Because like predictions are hard, especially about the future. So I think there's like one that you mentioned is like the failure of solar and wind kind of to get to like 100% or like essentially of getting to zero, 100% zero carbon electricity. Hmm. The other kind of technical one is essentially about like how far does electrification go, right? Because like you can also imagine a situation where like we get to 100% clean electricity but like electrification of other sectors is kind of harder than we think right currently right now kind of the mainstream very much makes the bets on renewables and on electrification right electrify everything is kind of the slogan for this mm. so like if this is kind of harder because only a third or so of like energy emissions are actually electrified at this point right so like this could be like another kind of technological failure point mm. Then I think there are kind of two or three other failure points that are often mentioned in the literature. One is, of course, about like international cooperation. So if international cooperation on climate kind of breaks down or economies become more fragmented from each other, something we're already seeing, right? So like that is a risk factor potentially. And then another one is kind of lots of energy intensive growth in emerging economies. So because as long as you have the situation that it's not trivial to 
build up lots of clean other like energy, then like this will always be kind of increased increased tourist. Yeah. So one scenario is where international cooperation breaks down a lot. So countries stop having interest in meeting their carbon obligations. And I suppose you could just have, you know, a more a broader breakdown in comedy between countries, uh, have more conflict and people are less interested in doing things about climate change, say, because they appreciate that they'll bear all the cost of their actions, but it will mostly benefit people overseas. It's easier with the renewables not working that well scenario. It's easier to see what that might imply about, well, you need to hedge against that or buy insurance against that by trying to figure out other energy generation technologies that would be able to fill the gap that renewables, as it turns out, in these scenarios can't. But what would you buy insurance against in the cooperation breaks down case? Like what becomes more useful in those worlds? Yeah. Actually, by the way, I would put a distinction between cooperation breaks down and willingness to pay for climate. But so like if we're kind of saying like willingness to pay for climate goes down, so like what is kind of robust against us? So, I mean, one thing that's robust against us is essentially a situation where we're kind of avoiding the prisoner's dilemma that you outlined, right? So like essentially clean tech is so cheap that it's not a trade-off anymore. So that's, I think, the reason to be excited about innovation, right? Because like innovation is kind of robust to like low corporation worlds. Like solar will still be cheap even if international cooperation breaks down like this isn't like true fully right there's supply chain issues etc like mm. but as a first approximation like at least like the technological learning part of solar getting cheap has been done right so it's kind of making this more robust so i think that's kind of one thing so that's kind of one action or that's kind of a class of actions that's, that's more robust here mm. i think there's also something converse which is about like actions that are not robust so like Right now, we're kind of having a global carbon price. Like if you kind of average it over like uh, global global emissions, that's maybe like between like zero and $5 per ton or, or even less than that. That's extra price that people are paying around the world on average. Yeah, like on average, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're having like models of climate progress where like we're going to have a carbon price of $100 a ton in 2030. Mm-hmm. So like everything that kind of those models imply is, I guess, by definition, not robust, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, rainforest protection is like another of those issues that seems really not robust because it kind of requires really strong international collaboration. So can you explain that about the the implication with the rainforest? So like the predominant approach right now to kind of saving rainforests is like uh, there's an international agreement, Red Plus, and this essentially is like an international carbon market. And like European countries, especially Norway, have been like very interested in kind of essentially paying countries like Brazil to kind of not reduce the rainforest. And this is all kind of problems like in reality. So like on paper, this looks like really cost effective, right? Because essentially you're exploiting the fact that the rainforests are predominantly in poorer countries that it should be relatively cheap to kind of avoid deforestation. In practice, this is a lot more difficult because it kind of would require lots of contracts going right because ultimately this is about like rewarding a counterfactual, like avoided deforestation. Like what is avoided deforestation? Like Mm. in the best cases, this is hard to model. In the case where it's kind of between sovereign states, it kind of becomes impossible. Mm. And like this is essentially not working right now. And kind of this is the kind of thing, right, that they like clearly break down in kind of a world where there's like less international uh, collaboration. So like even if it were true that it is cheap kind of in the best case world, this would be like a very non-robust action to take. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Another scenario was having lots of coal-driven economic growth in lots of different uh, developing countries. What would uh, you know seem particularly useful to do in those scenarios? Actually, this is more about energy-intensive growth, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't need to be coal uh, because, yeah. I mean, I think if, if right now if we're looking at regions that are still could grow a lot, like sub-Saharan Africa would probably grow in gas. But I think what this implies is like this kind of puts a limit to 
the usefulness of energy efficiency because essentially energy efficiency is the more carbon saving Mm. the lower energy demand is and if you're kind of in a situation where a lot of kind of energy efficiency benefits are going to eaten up by like additional energy demand it's kind of not necessarily going to reduce a lot of carbon so i think that's pushes in the direction of kind of focusing on cleaning up energy supply rather than kind of focusing on efficiency i mean this is one argument right Mm. there like many other good reasons to focus on efficiency because it's relatively cheap to do etc it's not saying don't do efficiency it's more like on the margin this is what this argument does yeah okay so this seemed like a really big insight to me when i heard it because it's like oh yeah it seems a very consequential and i felt like uh, you know i really should have uh, thought of this one before and realized that this was a really important issue but i suppose if i was a climate change professional working in you know allocating funding the way that you do it seems like something that would be very natural for you to realize in the course of your work uh, like a very important factor to notice and i guess if you you know if you were allocating funding at a really large level kind of globally it would be very normal to think well we want to have a portfolio of different investments and we want to hedge a bit so that you know if project a doesn't pan out then maybe project b will fill the gap and we want to have a portfolio such that we are sure that some things will succeed so yeah wh- why do you think that this idea of hedging isn't more incorporated into climate philanthropy and i guess um, you know climate change related public policy than it is yeah so i think the reason for that is, is fundamentally because both governments and kind of the climate uh, community have kind of coalesced around kind of well international climate policy and the targets, right? So in like kind of the Paris Agreement of 2015, which kind of enshrined this goal of like the world should aim for two degrees, ideally 1.5 degrees. Mm. And this has really locked in or really strongly framed the discussion, right? So like seriously thinking about kind of, okay, a three degrees or four degree worlds, like it's, it's not not really happening, I think, very much on a like policy level. There are obviously like academic studies, et cetera, but like it's a kind of a bit of a taboo to kind of to think in those terms, I think. Huh. I mean, it might make sense to, you know, really focus on not going above some threshold temperature change if we were confident that we knew that there was some discontinuity in the damage that, you know, if you went from two degrees to 2.1 degrees, then that would be really terrible because that would, you know, set up some chain reaction or be much more damaging than previous increases. But given that we don't really know that, uh, such that it's more just like smoothly increasing incremental damage, why is it that the the focus is so much around these like, you know, specific emissions targets and, um, you know, degrees change targets? this is really i think in the realm of speculation but it, i guess like there's there's two forces here i think one is kind of really the need to reduce uncertainty right or like the really need to reduce complexity because like generally like if you kind of entertain like 20 different scenarios etc you cannot really act mm. politically so you need to kind of get a common denominator and so like i think that's kind of the the cognitive or like how can you actually make policy work or like not only policy but also like a wider kind of societal discussion and then there's the other aspect, which is about like, okay, climate policy has emerged around setting ambitious kind of uh, targets far in the future. So like those targets become very important and then kind of become broken down like politically as, a, as essentially as a mechanism of political force, right? If you follow discussions on like high income countries on climate policy, like you will often hear like, this country has to reduce emissions by this amount by 2030. Otherwise, we will not meet the Paris Agreement or otherwise we will not stabilize temperatures at Mm. 1.5 degrees. Like those statements don't really make sense. Like those statements are kind of calculated from one scenario, etc. But like this is kind of the way to, I guess, structure a political conflict space. And then you can kind of have the debate about whether you want to meet this target or not. But that's, I think, what's happening. 
Okay, so and, and then it just has this effect that we're then kind of blind to what would be particularly useful in the scenarios where we don't meet those targets. You mentioned that it was, it was kind of taboo to think about the four, five, six degree change scenarios. I think I, I slightly encountered this when doing research for a previous episode. Yeah, it actually just seemed quite hard to find studies that would look at the implicate, like the yeah, the effects of really high changes in in temperatures where we really blew all of, all, of, all of the goals. Why is it taboo to look into that? Well, I think it's. I mean, okay, for the really high temperature ones, it's also maybe because they're just like really unlikely or it's also hard to do good science on them. Mm. But I think like the reason it's taboo is or like, I mean, the climate community and this includes like the climate science community, right? Like by and large has the goal to like motivate stronger action and kind of, I mean, saying like we might fail. It's like, it's not a very like possible move, right? Like it kind of always has to be about like, we shouldn't meet those targets. Like we should not kind of already plan for failure in a way so i think that's kind of um that's the mentality yeah and yeah. and i think also like you always want to emphasize the urgency or the absolute importance of those targets right like mm. i mean what i kind of mentioned in terms of like how the policy debates kind of turn out like the uk needs to meet this target by 2030 like this makes no sense the uk is less than one percent and like 2030 is like less than <laughs> It's only one decade of like a century long challenge, but like that's kind of the, how it's kind of broken down in terms of like being politicized, how it's kind of turned into political action and political contestation. I suppose to be sympathetic, uh, maybe that is the best way of, of approaching it politically or uh, in terms of, you know, influencing people's motivations and, and interests. But I, I guess it's I guess it's good that you, you don't you don't face that constraint. So you can <laughs> you can just talk about whatever you think is most useful um, on the on the margin. I guess yeah, pushing on from this risk management mission hedging thing, let's let, let's return to this issue of uh, you know broad strategies and, and which ones seem like they're they're, they're most promising. Um, I guess in, in my mind, in climate philanthropy, I think that there'll be kind of three very broad methods that one might adopt. This kind of you know direct impact, like you know deploying solar panels or you know planting trees. Um, then I guess there's you know science and innovation and R and D, which I guess is with the mind of making making you know, methods possible that previously weren't possible, or if they are possible, making them cheaper. Uh, and then I guess there's number three, which might say, you know, is kind of advocacy and political, like advocating for policy change. Um, you know, you're trying to get change regulations around cars or, you know, uh, shift government budgets one one way or the other. Yeah, is, am, I, am I missing something from the list? Or uh, would you kind of subdivide one of those categories uh, further in order to get more clarity? Yeah, so... I would very much kind of want to subdivide kind of a third category further. Mm. That's a little bit like this Eskimo example, having lots of different words for, for snow, right? So like political advocacy is kind of a thing where most of the action is or, or should mm. be because, I mean, it's like essentially political spending or overall societal spending is like two orders of magnitude larger than climate philanthropy. So it would be very strange if like philanthropy's main purpose should not be improving societal response overall. So, so I kind of want to differentiate things there further i think in particular one distinction or a couple of distinctions i find really useful one is kind of policy advocacy or like in this political space to kind of differentiate between increasing the pie which is kind of something that like grassroots organizations are focused on so like essentially increasing the salience of climate Mm. increasing the resource allocation towards climate and then kind of improving the allocation of the pie which is kind of about essentially making sure that the resources we're allocating to climate are kind of used in a way that's actually useful for like global um, decarbonization. Hmm. So those are, to me, are very, very different in terms of organizations doing the work. I guess it's maybe not surprising, but I lean much more towards funding uh, the latter kind of part of groups that are kind of focused on improving the response, societal response. 
Okay, yeah. So you're saying public budget or yeah, government budgets related to climate change are 100 times larger than climate philanthropy. And, and that's driving uh, or that, that's one of the key factors that causes you to think that uh, just trying to influence that then 100x larger budget is uh, 100x uh, greater effort is going to end up being one of the most important things that you could do. So, I mean, I guess like the way I would say it is like global climate spending overall, right? This is like government budgets, but also kind of like policy induced kind of uh, budget spending. It's like over 1 trillion. Climate philanthropy is like, well, it's like about 10 billion or so. So like it's two orders of magnitude lower. Hmm. And I guess like this alone does not give you the 100x multiplier. And I also not would not claim 100x multiplier from advocacy, but I would claim like a clearly strongly like relevant uh, multiplier. And that kind of comes from this idea that I think I've touched upon that like what I call predictable brokenness. So like there's hmm. parts about the way that we're spending our resources and attention on climate that is kind of broken and predictable ways right it's like often it's like hyper local it's focused on the short term hmm. it's kind of driven by different ideologies like both like green ideologies but also other ideological mistakes so like there's lots of reasons to think that like philanthropy can actually play a role in overall kind of improving the usefulness of the societal response so this is kind of where the multiplier comes from plus most problems can essentially only be solved through policy most problems related to climate yeah Okay, yo, let's go through each of these in turn and you can uh, yeah, say what you think are the most salient uh, or important factors about them. Starting with direct impact, you know, stuff like actually just spending money to you know, roll out solar panels or plant trees or build wind turbines. What stands out about that approach? Well, I think what stands out about this approach is that you're essentially pilot, like if you're doing this philanthropically, that you're essentially piling onto something which either the private sector or the government is already doing at much larger scales. Hmm. I think another kind of thing that's salient about this is that I think this is more useful for technologies or like for approaches where like the learning, the technological learning is higher. So like, and this is kind of something which is like generally true for like earlier stage technologies. Hmm. I'm much more excited about Google and Facebook kind of buying carbon removal offsets because they're essentially accelerating like nascent kind of direct air capture or other technologies where like what they're buying is not really the carbon offset, but they're also kind of essentially making kind of cost reductions in those technologies more plausible. Hmm. If you compare this to kind of buying rainforests or installing mature technology, which will often like look relatively cost efficient in terms of the near term local impacts. But I think it's kind of, yeah, I guess for, for reasons we already mentioned with trajectory changes, et cetera, it seems like very hard to be anywhere close to the, to the best thing one could do. Yeah. Okay. So if you're going to actually try to deploy something, then you get bigger cost decreases if you do it early on. So if you know if you deployed a bunch of solar panels in 2000, that would do a lot more to stimulate cost decreases in the panels than if you'd spent the same amount of money now. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, this is right. So like this seems to be, I mean, it's generally it's not only building stuff that reduces costs. So like it also seems to be true that like earlier pure R&D is kind of more useful earlier. Hmm. But if you're kind of talking about the relationship of like building more and driving cost reduction, so both through economies of scale and learning, so like you have learning rate models estimated for this. And usually what they estimate is like a cost reduction per doubling of cumulative capacity, right? So this kind of implies that like hmm. earlier units have like a much larger kind of benefit. Like buying a Tesla in 2004 was much more useful in terms of making electric cars feasible than buying a Tesla now. 
sorry, not sure whether you could buy Teslas in 2004, but like, yeah, you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some sort of electric vehicle. So with the cost curve, you get kind of a constant percentage decrease in the cost for each doubling of the amount of the thing that has ever been built. And I suppose, yeah, early on when almost no one is using something like solar panels, you know, decades ago, then it will be much cheaper to double the, the number of them that have ever been built than it would be to do that today. So that's that's what's driving the dynamic here. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of, I guess, one of the most famous uh, climate policies, or one, at least one that I've heard about a lot, is, um, as I understand it, Germany spent a lot of money trying to encourage people to actually deploy solar panels in Germany uh, throughout the 2000s. And I think I, I've kind of heard people make a bit of fun of this because, you know, <laughs> Germany is a very odd place to deploy solar panels on a, on a, on a global scale because it's not a particularly sunny place. And also solar panels were phenomenally <laughs> expensive back in uh, 2005, at least at least compared to today. So the amount of actual capacity that was constructed with all of this money was in absolute terms not that large. But it sounds like you're saying that that would be the wrong way to think about the impact of that policy um, and you, you would think about it pretty differently. Yeah, so I think this is probably one of the best things uh, that Germany ever did for the climate. Hmm. And I think this teaches us something really important about evaluating climate action overall, which is that in general... If we kind of evaluate an action like that we can do philanthropically or through policy, like it will generally be the case that the global long run consequences and the short term local consequences, like are quite often uh, not correlated or even negatively correlated. So, like if Germany would have wanted to like reduce emissions cost effectively in the early 2000s, like we would have bought Russian gas. This would have been really <laughs> cost effective. This would not have changed the trajectory of like technology, like the sort of just like increased gas demand by a little bit. Mm. Obviously, what we did is like very different, but like much, much more consequential for global emissions, not for local emissions, but for global emissions um, in the long run. And like this is a pattern I think we see again and again. And that's kind of why I'm generally much more excited about kind of driving change where kind of trajectory change can, can still happen rather than like marginally accelerating something that's already mature and that's kind of, yeah, already kind of on the path to victory, which would have, would have been true for gas in 2000, Russian gas in 2000, and this may be true for renewables right now. I mean, you're saying it might be negatively correlated. It seems like very frequently it, it is going to be negatively correlated because, of course, it's going to be cheaper in terms of like, you know, immediate reductions in emissions from the deployment, uh, you know, per dollar, uh, that that's going to be cheapest with the most mature technologies that have already come down the cost curve. Whereas if you if you did it with something completely new, like trying some new geothermal method, then it's going to be incredibly expensive per immediate change in, in emissions. But then it might potentially create a new industry that otherwise wouldn't have existed by demonstrating that it can work. So uh, it's like you almost want to set aside and almost completely ignore with your actions what, what the direct uh, emissions decrease is from you know generating electricity from the from the thing <laughs> now now we have a, a climate correlate of a strong long-termism um <laughs> yeah so <laughs> yeah. yeah no i think that seems right as a first approximation i mean it does not seem entirely right if you think about policy because like one's kind of solar is cheaper for example right so like a much smaller solar subsidy can kind of lead to additional deployment so you for example so like i kind of need to think about how different mechanisms kind of trade off against each other but, but as a first approximation like this this is exactly what i would say that like in general there should be a negative correlation between these impacts mm. and this is really why like when i look at the inflation reduction act for example like there's a lot of modeling about like how much will this reduce the emissions by 2032 and you can see it will be significant, and this will be mostly be driven by renewables and electric cars. And like, if you kind of look at this, you could kind of come to the conclusion, okay, renewables and electric cars are kind of the most important part of the Inflation Reduction Act, or generally of the American kind of 
policy change. And, and I mean, I would strongly disagree with that. I would kind of say like the more early stage kind of technology support is like much more consequential and much more important and much more excited about supporting organizations that are working on kind of increasing the amount of early stage technology supports compared to those that are focused on accelerating electric car adoption or renewables at a time where those technologies are already winning and it's kind of more something about accelerating it by a couple of years. Let's push on to the second bucket, which is science, innovation, and R&D. It's, it's, it's a bit funny because it seems like you were saying the first bucket, it only has, or it has impact overwhelmingly just by affecting the second bucket, uh, which is the science and innovation and cost reduction. But yeah, well, what else would you say about the second category? Uh, sorry, I guess just to correct that. So I think like for the first part, I mean, if you're kind of focusing on mature technology where the learning benefit is lower, then it, mm. I think it's plausible that the mitigation benefit is larger. Right, right. I think what you have to control then for is like policy additionality. So like you have to do this in your jurisdiction where this either increases the ambition of the climate targets or you don't have an ambitious climate target. If you're kind of in a liberal state in the US or if in the European Union and you're just building more clean stuff philanthropically, like there's a very high chance that what you're doing is actually not additional. So if you're in a jurisdiction where there is some cap on the total amount of emissions that are allowed to be emitted, then, uh, you know, any changes within that don't actually affect the total because, you know, if you reduce your emissions and that just reduces what the, the carbon price and allows someone else to emit more, is that the point that you're making? So like this is, I think, one kind of example of this, right? So this is what kind of called the waterbed effect in carbon markets. Luckily, right now, most carbon markets are not like designed in a way that this is still true anymore. Like this was mm. an early block of early carbon markets. Mm. But like the, the general phenomenon is much broader. So like something you will like that kind of generates the same effect, something like a clean energy standard that kind of forces the jurisdiction to only have like zero carbon electricity by a given year. Or like you often have this with like, essentially, you're having like lots of overdetermined decarbonization action and kind of both in the ambitious states in the United States, right? And like in the European Union, that essentially whenever you're doing something directly, you should kind of discount it and probably discount it quite significantly. Um, yeah. Okay. That's you sort of know. But yeah, okay, coming back to that question, yeah, what, what are the key things that listeners should know about, I guess, funding yeah, science and innovation? So, I mean, philanthropically funding science and innovation is like, I think I'm not sure how much this is actually happening. It's not a lot. It's something that Bezos Earth Fund has been doing. So the reason I would not be excited about that in general as a philanthropic action is that essentially private investment, venture capital investment kind of has already ticked up strongly. And it's also kind of strongly responding to kind of policy signals. So when I kind of think about causality, I think like I'm always kind of most excited about what we're going to talk about next, which is like changing policy and policy signals, because like in a way, kind of private investment into R&D, but also like kind of government R&D kind of follow from that. So I don't really see a large role for philanthropists kind of funding R&D projects. I mean, also, again, for the scale reasons discussed before. Yeah, I guess I would have thought that maybe there was a role because, say, you know, government budgets are the, are the largest movie here, but governments are somewhat famously reluctant to invest in, you know, really early stage R&D or very speculative ideas that are highly likely to fail because then, you know, the public will criticize and feel like their money has been wasted if it doesn't pan out. You might also think, sure, there's, there's tons of venture capital, you know, flooding into industries that are imminently about to become a really big deal like electric cars. But um Maybe venture capitalists would be less interested in funding, you know, early science and early R&D into something like, you know, hot rot ge- geothermal, for example, that isn't going to be very commercializable anytime soon, such that anything that they learn is just going to be copied by others by the time one could actually build a profitable business here. Am I thinking about this wrong? 
I think you're thinking about this right, and I think like on the on the margin of like what I would recommend on this space, like this would always be like the more early stage stuff that is kind of underfunded, right? So like mm. you can do this as philanthropy or as like impact investing. So like there are kind of uh, vehicles there. I think I kind of don't agree with what you say on like the characterization of political processes or to put it a different way. So it's certainly like been a big problem, right? But you kind of mentioned that it's like, okay, if you look at the American context, like the innovation pipeline was not in a good place. And like part of the reason for that was, okay, like basic research is kind of bipartisan, late stage commercialization is kind of low risk, hmm. but in the middle you have like several valleys of death and then you have the Solyndra scandal, which like where Mitt Romney kind of started his campaign. So like very strong bias against kind of technology support throughout the entire innovation pipeline. Hmm. But if you look at this right now, if you look at what has happened with the Inflation Reduction Act, and if you look at what's happened with Chips and Science Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, it looks much better. There's actually an office mm. now for clean energy demonstrations. So we now have a full portfolio or like a full kind of innovation support throughout the entire chain. And to link this to philanthropy, if you kind of look at what actually happened, and if you look at something like there was a very influential report published in like September around that time in 2020, which was called Energizing America, which was essentially advice for the incoming Biden administration on how to reform the energy innovation system. And if you kind of look at this, by all accounts, this has been a very influential report. It was a report uh, funded philanthropically, uh, not, not by us, but <laughs> by Breakthrough Energy. So I think even if you're quite down on what the current policy is, like I think one, one should not underestimate how feasible it is sometimes is to kind of uh, actually change and improve things for the better and ultimately if we cannot fix our public innovation system then like we're screwed with regards to climate i think it's not very plausible to say like we're going to replace this all with private innovation effort right just because it's so much smaller let's switch on to the to the third category then uh, is there anything you'd like to say about advocacy policy and, and all of that uh, which which you haven't said yet so people often ask me, like, are you for advocacy or policy or technology? Hmm. That's a really strange question for me, what, because what I'm mostly for, I mean, when we're in the high income country context, we're like, future emissions are small, innovation capacity is large. Hmm. Uh, so in that context, I'm mostly in favor of advocacy to improve technology policy. So it's kind of like, <laughs> it's about policy, it's about technology. Yeah. Um, so so I often find like people are kind of having like strange distinction in their hat. Yeah. I think apart from that, like this seems like still a really strong and kind of promising, I think, theory of change kind of to, to have an impact because, again, you have a situation where like by default, even when there's climate attention, this climate attention will not be focused on like what is globally most useful, et cetera. So like there's lots of, um, lots of, I think, lots of potential to kind of improve uh, societal uh, response or philanthropy there. Yeah. I guess I have this vague impression that philanthropists can often be quite reluctant to get in on policy or um, you know, advocacy around government policy because they feel it's extremely uncertain what kind of impact they're going to have and it's extremely hard space to navigate. Is that true? And uh, I mean, do, do you think it's a, it's, a, it's a correct impression? I think most strategic climate philanthropists are actually like quite involved in policy. So mm. I think this is maybe something I do encounter a lot because I do talk to a lot of people in tech, right, given Founders Pledge and my role. Like there's a particular class of donor that's kind of quite reluctant to invest in advocacy for that reason, because it seems like really uncertain. And like often also these people kind of have beliefs that private investment seems a lot more certain, et cetera. Hmm. But I think this is not true for kind of the um, institutional climate philanthropy that they're underinvesting in that. I, I think that those are mostly people that, that understand kind of the, the crucial role of, of policy. 
So it sounds like the taxing looms reasonably large in climate philanthropy, I suppose, because uh, Bezos, as I understand it, is one of the biggest donors, maybe even is kind of a majority of philanthropy uh, around climate change uh, now. I guess many people in the tech space are kind of skeptical of government action, have had negative experiences or negative impressions. Does that then mean that it can be kind of a, a neglected approach or are there any particular blind spots that you think might come from that particular industry? Yeah, so I think each each industry or each kind of group of people have their own kind of blind spots, right? And like the the blind spots of the mainstream greenness, like the technophobia, the anti-nuclearism, etc. Hmm. But the blind spots of kind of the Silicon Valley donor class, I guess, is kind of this skepticism towards advocacy, etc. So like this is absolutely a factor and something I'm like kind of a lot of my explanatory work, which was kind of about like building arguments, which is not so much the research itself, but kind of making the argument for specific opportunities. It's kind of focused on explaining like how crucial um, advocacy is uh, first by showing like how crucial government policy is for innovation, but then also kind of like the fact that this can actually be many quality um, effective for for philanthropy. Yeah, because I think this is a big limitation to impact. How can you demonstrate the importance of government policy for philanthropy to someone who's uh, who's intuitively skeptical? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't claim that I've kind of found well, the last solution on that, but uh, the last word on that. But I think one thing I can focus on, or one thing we've, we've kind of did recently, we kind of worked on a talk. Uh, this was together with the with the Clean Air Task Force, or like the talk was given by the Clean Task Force, but very much with our kind of with the goal to kind of explain uh, how does philanthropy work, and kind of with the example of super ultra geothermal. So like this is very much a technological invention and lots of people kind of lots of people in silicon valley might be very excited about when they hear about it but i think the first thing that they would often do would be like privately invest rather than fund the advocacy Mm. and so we kind of teased out like what are the different kind of ways in which kind of philanthropy matters here one is kind of philanthropy matters for i mean really putting something on the map like kind of building stakeholder networks kind of listening to like relevant stakeholders communicating with policymakers building credible arguments so like this is kind of one really important part another part is kind of more classical what one would call like public good provision so if you're kind of looking at a super hot rock geothermal space that is like largely funded the companies through kind of private investments venture capital no one will necessarily do the like public good for the entire industry so this might be the the more general lobbying this might be stuff like kind of understanding where is actually the where's the heat concentrated this might be like about organizing uh, knowledge sharing between these actors. So like there's kind of a lot of actors that for like a more mature context, maybe a government would do around public provisions might not just happen in early stage technology development and can be um, accelerated philanthropically. So I think this would be another, another one. And then of course, credible advocacy, like if kind of a climate NGO kind of goes to a policymaker and says like, hey, this technology could be really like impactful. Like that's just a different story than if kind of the private company interested in that is kind of uh, making that case. Right, right. Those are a couple of those mechanisms. Yeah. You've done quite a lot of research into where current climate philanthropy is actually going. Where is it focused out of these three or four uh, different categories? So it's actually not really um, easy to kind of infer this along those dimensions so like we have like good data and like this is not our own data so this is data that the climate works foundation has collected and we're kind of doing some secondary analysis with this so there's very good data on kind of the different regions and the different approaches but this is more about approaches like different technologies or grassroots activism etc this is not so much along the lines that you outlined so i can't really answer this from a purely data driven perspective okay yeah overall my impression is that most focus has been traditionally on the on the more policy stuff 
Bezos Earth Fund, I think they're having so much money that they're kind of also doing some of the more direct direct stuff. But I think it's kind of what maybe what they would do kind of as the last action of their fully impact maximizing when they feel like advocacy is kind of saturated. Okay, uh, let's push on from method to uh, location or geography uh, as a vector. Because uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the different dimensions over which you, you were thinking of optimizing. Which regions and countries currently spend the most on climate change mitigation? So right now it's essentially uh, Europe and the US. And yeah, so those are the regions spending the most by a large amount. So in thinking about crowdedness, I suppose, you know, we're thinking about where the most spending is now in order to try to think about, well, where would spending be neglected? And so where might you find low hanging fruit that isn't already being taken? In thinking about crowdedness, should we think about it in per capita or, you know, per current emissions or per expected future emissions or, or uh, you know, per something else? Yeah, so I think that's just a yeah, really interesting question. Um, I think we need a much more complex model for this. So like, I think kind of this, this first idea around like crowdedness is like, like crowdedness or I guess neglectedness is kind of oftentimes too simple once you're kind of getting into the nitty gritty at this level. And I think what I would say, for example, here, I think what, what we would ultimately want to get to, uh, it's not something I think anyone has gotten to, would be something like, what is the decarbonization value of a different region, which would be a function of both the emissions there, but also kind of all of the inter- uh, like indirect effects, right? So I've kind of emphasized like mm. the most important thing that Germany ever did was not reducing emissions. Germany was making solar cheap. And the worst thing was like being anti-nuclear, like both of these things are kind of mostly having effects outside. Mm. So so that's, I think, something we, we would want to get to ultimately. Obviously, this would be really hard, but I think as a first approximation, thinking about the importance of different regions, I think it makes sense to kind of think about different theories of change and then kind of from the perspective of a given theory of change, kind of evaluating the importance of a region. So if you're kind of saying, okay, you're in this, let's say you're in the innovation kind of theory of change, then you kind of want to look at what's the innovation capacity in a given region and also like how much can we plausibly still improve that, et cetera. So like you're kind of combining elements of importance of like um, improvability or like, yeah, it's kind of about tractability to kind of form a view. And I think for innovation, this would probably lead you towards um, maybe focusing on on the US and that like as the most kind of potent economy uh, in terms of innovation. Hmm. We are also looking at Europe, not from the perspective that we think Europe is equally effective at innovation, but that in general philanthropically speaking like it's kind of uh more neglected uh, innovation of philanthropy in europe so that kind of leads us to think we might want to look at europe as well but so juggling those kind of considerations okay yeah so, so in as much as you're uh trying to stimulate uh science or you know demonstrations of, of new technologies maybe what matters is uh, not per capita at all or anything like that but like you know a per number of scientists or per i guess you're saying kind of in, in, in innovation capacity there's something really important here which is about like when we think about neglectedness or crowdedness, I think we usually think about this in terms of like increasing a direct effort. Mm. And like what I'm talking about when I like prioritize between reasons for philanthropy is like essentially I want to have the most leverage, right? And this can like often lead to like the opposite conclusion. Like it could say like everything else being equal, you want to fund philanthropy in the region with the largest innovation budget. Right. One line of reasoning would take you to, well, you want to um, fund something in the country that has no budget around climate change at all. But I suppose if you're working on trying to shift what people are doing, then you want to do it in a place where there's the most money <laughs> available to shift or the, or the, or the most effort uh, available to, yeah. to improve. So yeah, it's, it's the exact reverse logic. Yeah. 
I suppose, what can we say then about location as something you might optimize over here? Because you were saying the most money is spent in the US and Europe, I suppose, because they're the richest places. And so the governments have more to spend and they're more likely to spend money locally than to fund some project overseas. And I guess they probably also have the richest philanthropists there who are interested in these topics and people tend to fund things in the country that they're from for some reason. But at the same time, it might be that it's best to fund stuff there because they have the most innovation capacity or they have the most public spending available to be influenced and, and, and improved. Do you end up drawing any conclusions about you know where you would like to make grants? Yes, and like I mean, we're we're doing a lot of research, kind of getting to to more final or like more updated conclusions. Mm. But I think like a first conclusion would be like if you're engaging in a high income country, where like I mean, if you're in the EU, like that's maybe like your three to five percent of like future emissions, and like maybe you're in like twenty to thirty percent of global innovation capacity mm. right now for for clean tech, right? So like. It's very clear that the goodness of actions as a first approximation in, in the EU is kind of determined by their effect on like uh, well global emissions through innovation or other mechanisms. So that's kind of combining like theory of change with like engaging in regions. So like so that's kind of the first thing. And and then if you're kind of within innovation, you would kind of say, okay, like maybe you want to look at the US, maybe the EU, maybe Korea, maybe China, Japan. And that's kind of, then it kind of ends like with regards to like plausible candidates for innovation philanthropy, because only those jurisdictions are kind of plausibly producing like large scale technological change. Hmm. Looking at this from a different perspective, if you're kind of looking at like, looking at this from the perspective of like avoiding carbon lock-in, avoiding like, well, large investments kind of that would like kind of commit emissions into the future, like it will look very different, which reasons, which regions you will um, prioritize, right? Then you will kind of look at China, India, Southeast Asia, and then you will think about how this compares to to Sub-Saharan Africa. Those are really hard questions because there's always lots of different considerations. I think right now we're definitely, or almost definitely going to invest more in China because that's like obviously important from both angles. For other regions, I think it's usually clear what the considerations are. But for example, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa versus uh, Southeast Asia, like and it's kind of unclear it kind of depends on how you kind of trade off like our shapeability how you think about effectability of the mission so that's kind of work that we're doing right now kind of trying to get a better handle on those questions okay so yeah uh, so you don't necessarily end up saying well you know uh you know there's so little money spent in nigeria so we should uh, make you know try to make grants in nigeria instead it's more uh, realizing what is the comparative advantage of, of each different location? Like what are the th- most important things that can be influenced there? So with Europe, it potentially has quite a lot of universities that could do interesting science, but the fraction of you know, our future emissions that it, globally that it accounts for is really quite small. So you can kind of ignore that aspect of it and just think about well, what could they do that might influence you know, the 95% of emissions that are going to come from the rest of the world. Yeah. I think another way to say it is it's like, Absence of spending is not a low, like not sufficient for evidence of neglectedness, right? So, mm. in the sense of like, it could be entirely rational to not spend on a region. For example, it could be entirely rational to not spend a lot on Africa because Africa right now has almost no emissions. And if one thinks, okay, future emissions of Africa are mostly determined by like technological change to something globally, then you would kind of take the view that it doesn't really matter to engage in Africa right now. This is not the view I'm taking. I'm just mm. I'm lining, lining out kind of view what one, one could take. Kind of illustrate that. Yeah. So innovation is one of the things uh, that, that we mentioned uh, at the outset as being a particularly important kind of trajectory shaping thing. And the other one was this carbon lock-in from construction. Um, and I suppose you, you're saying you can, you can, I guess you can just look at the number, like where are the most coal plants being constructed? Uh, and it's going to be China, India, Indonesia, I don't know, but possibly um, Vietnam, uh, Nigeria, uh, you, you might know this. 
and then and then you think well what could plausibly be done to shape i guess the amount of that that's going on or to repurpose the plants because it might just seem not practical to stop people from constructing them yeah so i mean i guess repurposing is ultimately more more on the innovation side of things yes i think that's probably right but like i mean to make like kind of this a bit more concrete like if we kind of compare for example china china and indonesia right like mm. China's coal fleet is like significantly larger, but like China's also kind of at a further stage in economic development, also like at a further stage in terms of climate policy commitments. Mm. So like you could actually come out uh, and like kind of say like, okay, you want to focus on Indonesia, for example, because they are like, there's more new coal potentially being built. That's kind of like, that's a reason to kind of engage there rather. So like the like difference in effectability. And so that's kind of what I was pointing towards in the beginning where we're kind of saying like, just looking at the absolute numbers of like current capacity or like plant capacities, it's not not really enough. We, we kind of want to get a better model of effectability that kind of takes into account other considerations. Yeah. Have, have you tried coming up with a measure of effectability or is that uh, kind of yet, yet to be done? Yeah, I mean, that's something we're working on right now. We're kind of uh, working on kind of compiling the data. And then uh, so like we're, we're looking at data of, uh, well, future emissions, future emission scenarios and kind of existing infrastructure. So committed emissions and then kind of considered emissions right like what is kind of being planned and once we've kind of collated this data we can kind of better inform the question of like what would you need to assume about like the the different effectability levels to prioritize different different things i think that's kind of where this exercise will probably end there will be no definite answer there but it will kind of allow us to kind of explore like what would you need to believe to kind of prioritize sub-saharan africa over indonesia or like china over india etc yeah this is making me think about you know, when I was uh, growing up in in Australia and hearing a lot about about climate change. You know, Australia, d- despite being uh, having a pretty bad record on a on a per capita basis, uh, is just a just a really small country, and so its emissions kind of don't amount to very much in the in the scheme of things. Certainly, considering you know considering all of the twenty first or twenty second century. Um, but then, yeah, most of the discussion is around how can we change uh, Australia's emissions right now? Uh, you know, what what can we do to to reduce uh, you know per capita emissions? In Australia, you know, over 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 the next ten years, uh, which which you're suggesting is kind of a really big distraction. But then I wonder, maybe that actually kind of is fine because it prompts you to uh, you know spend money on developing new, or deploying new technologies, and that ends up driving down the cost. And in fact, that is not a, a not unreasonable way to influence uh, to have a much larger effect by influencing what other countries end up doing over uh, over the longer term. It's kind of a, ca- a case where you could be like at least in the ballpark of being right, uh, even though people are following kind of a completely wrong logic yeah i guess there's two things that i would say to that like one is kind of developing technology and driving down the cost is not usually what you prioritize if you're kind of looking at your place for the next 10 years right so like mm. this is not where this action leads to right if we kind of look at like why did germany build some like was willing to subsidize renewables so much this was not driven by climate this was mostly driven by germans really liking renewables and germans really wanting to phase out nuclear power so it's kind of the motivation was actually quite quite different. Mm. So so I think that's kind of the problem here. But in general, like the politically feasible way in countries to kind of make a contribution is to drive down technology. So like I think we very much agree on that. I mean, California is I think smaller than Australia, right? And like California had a large impact on global emissions through innovation. I think the other thing I'd say is like this fails when the world is very different from the high income countries. So. This kind of fails when, like, um, let's say in, in Switzerland, like the, the marginal demand of kind of the most radical climate group there is to kind of insulate all Swiss homes, which kind of will 
really do approximately nothing for global decarbonization because like most emission growths in countries where like insulation isn't really like the problem mm. or like a- another example for this is kind of carbon capture and storage which we might very well do without for for coal power in like high income countries but like the fact that we might do that without this is kind of a reason that the innovation there is slow and that kind of it's not really becoming affordable option kind of in those places where a lot of new coal is located Right, right. So the technologies that you might end up deploying in Australia could just like not be super transferable or, or not not be the priorities if you're thinking about, uh, you know, much, much larger countries over over a much longer, much longer time period. Yeah. Okay, let's finally turn to specific approaches or specific technologies or, you know, more concrete projects and how interesting they seem to you. Maybe I'll, I'll run through a bunch of these and you can offer your takes on, yeah, how excited you are by them relative to other people. And you can give a reason why. I guess, I suppose I've chosen a selection of options that are a little bit less mainstream and about which I've heard people talk about over the last couple of years. I've got quite a few. So the audience should forgive you if your answers uh, end up being reasonably brief here. Does that sound good? Yeah. So like, there's one thing I want to like flag here before we go into this is that essentially I'm not talking generally about the technological attractiveness of a given solution. I'm kind of talking about my all things considered view given like how good I think something is and like how appreciated or underappreciated it is. Sorry, what do you mean by that? So I mean by that, that like given that climate is such a crowded space, like being excited about something and like being about excited about something as a marginal funding opportunity is like, it's like often quite different because a lot mm. of stuff is already well-funded compared to what is needed, et cetera. So I suppose the, the archetypal case here might be that, you know, you're very optimistic about solar panels in general. You think that, you know, we might end up generating a whole lot of electricity through solar panels in, in the fullness of time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's underrated. And it doesn't necessarily mean that on the margin, we need to make more philanthropic grants to fund that if the two things come apart completely. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I'm very excited about solar panels and I'm very unexcited about uh, funding advocacy to marginally accelerate solar panels, yes. So uh, we'll think about how good do these things seem relative maybe to, to how much attention or how much effort they're getting now. First one is, yeah, funding kind of grassroots activism like Extinction Rebellion or, you know, Sunrise or, or Just Stop Oil, uh, all of which have been getting quite a lot of attention in recent years. Yeah, so I think this is a good example of what we just talked about. So uh, especially I think the early, I think the Greta-style climate movement and Extinction Rebellion, et cetera, have certainly like changed the conversation and like had a big impact there like both in terms of increasing the pie but also kind of in and narrowing the solution space so i guess i'm i'm a bit ambivalent about that but in general like once you kind of hear about them and the well national media like that's not the time to fund them anymore it's kind of a little bit like why you shouldn't i guess fund uh in disaster disaster philanthropy is like a bad idea right like once something has national attention that's not what you want to fund i think the interesting question there is whether you could fund early stage movements that will like reliably produce good results. I think that's where I would look in that in that space, but I wouldn't be excited about funding any of those movements you just mentioned. The kind of ailing consideration that would jump to mind is you might think, well, they've managed to get so much attention, so they have a very big audience. So maybe they're really competent and they've been able to build these really big movements. So maybe they should get more resources and not because they're well able to use them. You think on balance that factor is dominated? Yeah, I think on balance that factor is dominated. I mean, I think like they both get national attention as well as kind of like broad approval. And like, uh, so like there's also like large funds like the Climate Emergency Fund, et cetera, that is kind of mm. funding this work. And I think the other thing is also I have a certain ambivalence with regards to like for something like Just Stop Oil, like so that's quite polarizing or like some of those other movements, like how like kind of the effect actually looks like. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I guess alternatively, how about funding progressive organizations that are focused on improving policy around popular solutions around electrification, I guess, rewiring uh, America? How do they look? Yeah, so like rewiring America would be kind of this example for like, uh, well, essentially, they're really focused on kind of yeah, rewiring America. So like near-term mature technology decarbonization options, that's just like, yeah, well, electrifying your home, electrifying your private transport, putting solar panels on the roof. Yeah, I think that's kind of something that's like extremely popular um, and extremely like political pressures that exist are kind of very much focused on this because this is where the American labor is, for example, right? These are not organizations I, I would think is good to support because they're kind of shifting the discourse in the direction that's kind of removed from like optimizing global emission reductions. Like if, if like Revire in America alone would ride the climate bill, it would kind of almost be entirely focused on mature technologies and kind of would kind of not not capitalize on the innovation benefits and that's not where I would push on the margin. I see, because they all focus maybe on job creation within America, which is just completely disconnected from the actual goals that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and also those are kind of the goals that are already kind of like have strong constituencies, right? So like, Mm. yeah, so like it's not only about job creation, it's also about like getting near-term action down, right? And that's like very appealing. And I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying like on the margin, it's not the thing to focus on, I think. Yeah. Okay. How about, yeah, new nuclear power plant designs and, and, and reactors and trying to get demonstrations of those built and then them uh, scaled up a whole lot? I'm sure there's, there's probably, you know, a bunch of different uh, ones uh, here. I've, I've heard of uh, molten salt reactors, but I imagine that there's, there's other ideas as well. Yeah. So I think this is something where it's actually interesting because I think there's a fair amount of private investment. Um, hmm. But philanthropically, it's kind of still fairly niche. So like in that sense, like supporting this philanthropically is something we have done and I think we'll, we'll continue to do. And kind of similar to what I talked about for Super Hot Rock, I think there's there's things that like philanthropy can do there that's kind of that are kind of quite quite useful, and that also like many I guess many traditional climate philanthropists will not do so, and will not do like the reason they will not do this is because they're anti-nuclear. So like that's something we're we're kind of interested in, especially in Europe because yeah, there's kind of even though Founders Pledge is like a small climate funder, we're like among the largest pro-nuclear climate funders in Europe because there are so few pro-nuclear climate funders in Europe. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about these newer technologies that, that people talk about, newer energy energy generation technologies, like my mind immediately goes to trying to analyze whether the advocates for them are overstating, you know, the technical feasibility of these methods, or if we could get molten salt nuclear reactors to work, would they be cheap enough to actually compete with alternatives? How much time do you spend thinking on that kind of technical level, you know, evaluating engineering details and, and experiments that people are running to see whether you buy into the, the overall case? Yeah, so like in general, this is something we sometimes do. So like we spend a lot of time on the techno-economic feasibility of repowering coal last year because it seemed like a key uncertainty for like several rounds we were making. Hmm. But I think in general, it's just not something we would generally spend a lot of time on for a couple of reasons. I think one, it's like it's really about information economy. Like it seems like you can spend a lot of time on this and like not reduce uh, kind of certainty very much. Hmm. You're kind of always ending up in this like there are many different plausible interpretations of the evidence Mm. so and where on the other hand like there's very robust evidence to think that like traditional climate philanthropists are like not investing in nuclear because they're anti-nuclear so like essentially there's kind of reasons that you know about the structure of the funding that are kind of independent of the technology that like lead you towards making that bet i think another thing which seems like important in this context is that i think i mean again this is my policy-centric view but like when you look at advanced nuclear, I think like the main problems, like the main problems are not technological ones or like there are clearly technological problems, but 
the fact that they're not sold is like essentially a function of like sustained public attention or or the lack thereof, right? Mm. So in that sense, I think my main uncertainty with advanced nuclear is not like does the physics work. My uncertainty is like will we actually get a functioning uh, advanced nuclear innovation system that kind of solves these generally um, solvable problems. And I think similarly for something like like super hot rock where the uncertainty is more on on that level. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense to me that old school environmentalists would be uh, skeptical of nuclear, uh, although like, as, as I understand it, kind of at least the, the environmental movement, at least in the English speaking world, has been taking a sustained second look at, uh, at nuclear power. But why would it be that climate philanthropists today as, as a group would be really biased against against nuclear as an option? So I think this has certainly been like the anti-nuclear bias is much less than it was five years ago or so, right? So like, I think as a first approximation, like, the influx of the tech community of like Silicon Valley wealth into climate philanthropy has certainly like made climate philanthropy at large kind of less technophobic or less like kind of anti-nuclear, for example. So I think this is much less of a problem than it used to be. Uh, so I think it's kind of becoming more nuanced, especially in the in the US context. Yeah. But the other thing that we talked about then before is like, if you're a tech donor, like you being excited about advocacy is kind of the exception, right? So Right. Yeah, another proposal, uh, or like nuclear-related proposal that I've heard is that rather than try to come up with new nuclear power designs that involve all kinds of new methods to try to make them safer or more efficient or cheaper or, or whatever, a bunch of innovation, instead what we should do is just take the existing best designs that have already gotten regulatory approval and so have already gone through uh, all the testing that can take years or decades and instead just produce tons of really small versions of these, so kind of really uh, modular reactors, and that that is something that could be done a whole lot faster if, if you were making them sufficiently small that they could just be you know, mass-produced in, in, in factories and then rolled out at, at all kinds of sites. Yeah, Have you heard that idea? And uh, if so, do, do you have a view on it? Yeah, so I mean, this is a, just a form of small modular reactors, right? So like both new scale in the US and kind of Rolls-Royce, I think, in the UK. So like both of those reactors, so these small modular reactors are essentially using existing technologies. And I think those are kind of the lowest risk versions. So in a portfolio of different advanced nuclear pets, technologically speaking, I guess those are probably the, the lowest risk ones, but also the ones that probably seem like least exciting in terms of solving some of the other things that people don't like about nuclear. But yeah, I think that's those are plausible candidates. Those are the ones that are generally furthest in the, in the kind of pipeline. Yeah, I guess. So what are those groups trying to do there? I, guess, I suppose they're, they're trying to break through the regulatory barriers to building any new nuclear in many locations. Is that the thing that they're trying to confront? Yeah. So like, I mean, it depends a bit on the, so if it's a, like a light water um, reactor, so like you have a licensing process or for less than place for the large, like for example, in the US for the large light water reactors, but essentially for newer designs, especially if you're kind of using growing further from that, you need uh, new regulatory processes. And there's a lot of lock in there, um, kind of like regulatory uh, lock in that makes this, makes this very hard. And it's another reason why advocacy is good. Like you, you cannot fix a nuclear regulatory process through private investment. Like you need to kind of uh, exert political pressure. Okay. How about geothermal energy? And as I understand it, there's kind of two different categories here. There's the classic geothermal energy. And then there's this hot rock geothermal, which is where you dig much, much deeper and you can get sufficiently hot rocks almost everywhere if you're able to, to go down far enough. Um, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's, that's roughly correct. I think there are a lot more, but I think those make sense to distinguish that uh, those two kind of as, so like classical geothermal, right? It's like very location specific and it's kind of 
good when you have it, but essentially only available when you have like volcanoes or like very specific conditions. So it's kind of a niche renewable resource. If you like talk about like super hot rock or like what, what, what groups like Clean Air Task Force or Project Inner Space, et cetera, would kind of work on or kind of supporting uh, the development of super hot rock here, yeah, what you're looking at is kind of drilling much deeper and kind of then yeah, injecting water and kind of getting the heat out. Hmm. So making like geothermal any, anywhere is kind of the catchphrase here. So like making geothermal location independent, hmm. essentially by utilizing and kind of further developing technological advances that were kind of brought about by the fracking revolution in the United States. So we now are much better at drilling. Let's kind of use this for not that for extracting gas, but for kind of um, getting heat out. What do you make of it? Is that a underrated or promising thing to fund? Yes, absolutely. So like, I mean, this is something I guess we, we've we been supporting pretty heavily kind of through supporting the, the Clean Air Task Force, which has one of the, or has, I think, the largest philanthropically funded program on this. And I think this is kind of one of these, like a really promising bet. If, if this works, you can kind of essentially generate uh, clean, low-carbon electricity that is also firm, right? That is available 24-7 mm. and that's relatively energy dense. So you could also do a repowering potentially with this. So like this is a very, like very exciting from an energy standpoint, mm. but like extremely nascent. And like also, I guess, because of the connotation, connotations with geothermal traditionally, right? So like it kind of requires active work to kind of change the perception of geothermal and to kind of build the excitement to like actually try those, right? So like this is another example where like uh, philanthropy can be helpful because it's not rocket science, like one can do those things, but like one needs kind of um, public experimentation, one needs to drill those wells, etc. Yeah. Private capital will not do that. So you need to make this more likely and what like the way to make this more likely, I guess, is through to target it to democracy. Got to build some buzz so that the uh, people pressure the government to try this stuff out. Like, I guess like um, money has been uh, given to fusion for, for many years because people find it uh, exciting. What are the reasons why hot rock geothermal? I mean, it sounds really great if we could actually dig sufficiently deep uh, and, it, and it wasn't horrifically expensive. What are the reasons why it's most likely to not work out and not be a fantastic way of solving this problem? Well, I think like the most likely way it would not work out is like if we're not getting our, to me at least, seems like if we're not getting our act together in terms of like making it work, right? Like essentially, yeah. like this requires some progress in material science, it requires experimentation, et cetera. So like we want to walk down this technology path and try this out, but this will kind of take uh, sustained policy effort. Like this is something like that will take a decade uh, and will take like significant public uh, investment. Mm. So I think the main uncertainty is like, will this actually happen? So so that's I think the dimension that I think about. Obviously, it could also not work technologically, but like in general, I think it seems like much lower risk technologically than like something like fusion, etc. Because like ultimately, what you're doing is like you're extending a, a set of technologies that you've kind of already developed through the shale gas revolution and applying it to, to a new context. So this is not like, yeah, this is kind of it's not rocket I mean, science. It's innovation, but it's kind of, yeah, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that from one point of view, you um, seem extremely optimistic because with many different technologies, you're saying, sure, you know, if we put in the effort to make this work that we did with solar and wind, then we could just solve climate change if we had the sustained science behind it. And I guess... It's because of that view that causes you to think, well, the main problem here is that that's not happening or it might not happen. And the main reason it won't happen is just that public policy and governments don't get behind it on a sustained big scale. Uh, is that kind of right? I think that's kind of right. I think like uh, if we had the level of enthusiasm and public support about like all climate solutions than what we had for like solar and wind, like 
we can definitely like solve climate change. Uh, like, and I'm very like I would be very confident about that. Like being basically true, right? Like, it doesn't mean like I'm sure that any one of those technologies will like definitely succeed, but like they're enough like really good bets worth making. And like, it's not that like solar was cheap in 2000. It's, well, it's not mm-hmm. like obviously a great energy solution. There were lots of articles then about like renewables never getting cheap, never being a significant part of the energy supply. So like, I think that's kind of the evidence for like technological change to, at a first approximation is to a large degree, like the result of kind of decisions. I mean, I think it's, it's different for something like fusion, right? But like, I mean, for stuff that isn't, isn't quite fusion, I think that seems generally quite true to me. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of fusion, how about nuclear fusion? Yeah, so I think nuclear fusion for me is kind of something that I find interesting for the long-term potential for humanity. I, I don't really see it that relevant for kind of climate timelines. Mm. And sometimes I'm worried that like people kind of look to fusion and then kind of like don't take advanced nuclear or like advanced nuclear fusion seriously. So mm. I think if you're, yeah, so does I see this a bit as a risk? It's not something I kind of talk a lot about because yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I kind of see it on a different timeline and like, it's not really needed. Like we have a lot of other bets we could solve this problem with. I see. So the problem is just that it's going to take too long to get it to a commercial price. Um, that like the technical challenges are greater, and so there's there's other things that you're more optimistic about. You know, coming before nuclear fusion, basically. Yeah, and it would be kind of a shame if like we would now all get excited about nuclear fusion and like wouldn't make sure that like all of the advanced nuclear designs like nuclear fission designs we now have in the pipeline that we like don't get them to commercialization by 2030 like yeah yeah is there some particular technical challenge that stands out to you as being the reason why nuclear fusion won't be a, a common electricity source anytime soon uh, so i don't look into the technology there deeply but like i mean it's just like like i mean we're essentially pre-demonstration mm. so and like we're many years away from demonstration right Many of the advanced nuclear fission designs have been like demonstrated in the lab in the 1960s and 1980s. Obviously, you can always have like an intelligence explosion and these kind of things, and then like <laughs> everything gets like radically faster. I think like that's like that's like a very EA kind of uncertainty that I might have there. But like mm. if you're going to think about like technological changes roughly the the way it has been in the past, then it seems clear that this is further away than advanced nuclear or super architecture from. Yeah, uh, I'll stick up with links to a couple of videos from the YouTube channel Real Engineering uh, that I watched last year, which uh, yeah, it definitely made me appreciate just how challenging it is to make a nuclear fusion work at a reasonable price. It, it does seem like, although it's, it's super cool, it does seem like it's some way off. How about efforts to make concrete with less carbon dioxide? Because as I understand it, actually, concrete is just an enormous source of, of emissions that uh, I guess at least, at least I don't think about very much. Yes. And I think for that reason, that's like one of the areas we, we should be focusing on, right? Like industrial decarbonization and like, yeah, cement, et cetera. So generally that seems more neglected. I mean, it is one of the foci of like Bill Gates's effort, also like as a break for energy, also like the private capital efforts of this. So that kind of makes us neglect in this piece a little bit less emphasized, but in general, it's probably still, still more neglected than, than most other things. And it's kind of very much related to this like carbon lock-in problem and to like the geographical disconnect. So like essentially we could talk about this a lot less kind of focused on countries where we have a lot of like existing kind of concrete infrastructure, but like a lot of the world is gonna need a lot more concrete kind of as they're, as they're building the economy. So kind of as a higher global importance than what we would guess kind of the local importance from where we are. Yeah, because yeah, remind me, what is it? Cement is responsible for five percent of emissions globally, or, or something like that. And and I don't know whether there are many scientists or businesses working on figuring out how to how to do that without producing so much uh, CO two. 
something in the order of three to four percent or something. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's always hard like to like to make these calculations in climate because there's always people working on it. Like you never kind of get into this like extreme extreme neglectedness. Are there any other similar kind of industrial processes that generate a surprising number of emissions that, but you know, are not really part of the public discussion of decarbonization? Yeah, I mean, industrial decarbonization, like certainly, like I mean, steel is the other big thing there. Mm. The other thing is like uh, shipping, which I think is a similar ballpark in terms of emissions, international shipping in particular, mm. because that is kind of outside the scope of national climate policy, and it's kind of somehow much less salient than aviation for for no real reason um, <laughs> because so i guess something else <laughs> yeah. because people get it's on planes related, it's not related to person yeah yeah it's not related to personal lifestyle choices right yeah so yeah so shipping is kind of a little bit forgotten and well agricultural emissions so like essentially the stuff that's kind of beyond electricity and i think at this point also beyond electricity and electric mobility i guess is the stuff that gets talked about less and it's often the stuff that is both harder to solve and kind of has the longer kind of capital assets related to it so it's like there should be many reasons to kind of like as a marginal philanthropist to kind of focus on those sectors Mm. so so the fact that it's difficult that actually seems good here because it suggests that it's like very early stage issue where additional effort might move the needle substantially can you explain the logic behind why it would be promising to to focus on shipping say with shipping, I mean, the fact that it's kind of outside of like, well, outside of national climate policy is already kind of like evidence to think that like there's probably less attention on it that there should be paid. Mm. And then it's kind of related to, well, it's like a hard technical problem, right? It's about like energy dense, like you need yeah. energy dense uh, fuels. And it's also a problem where I think the success on like light duty electrification of like the cars kind of easily mislead us to assume that we'll be easily able to do this for all other are heavy due to transport as well. So I think that's another reason there. So those would be kind of the, the considerations. And the fact that it's hard means that emissions in the future are more additional. Like the probability that those emissions are in the future is like higher, right? If you're kind of thinking about electric vehicles and like because electric vehicles are definitely like winning, it's kind of you're, you're less sure um, whether you actually make an, an additional impact. I see. So, so the issue is because it might be that it doesn't get solved, maybe ever or not, not for an extremely long time, there's more time for emissions from that source to accumulate. And so you can have a potentially have a, have a bigger impact that way. Whereas if, if you worked on cars, well, cars are going to be electrified soon within a reasonable amount of time anyway. So there's just only so much you can do there. Yeah, I think that's that's essentially the argument. Yeah. Yeah. What about, yeah, um, emissions from farming or agriculture? And I suppose famously, um, animal agriculture stands out there. I mean, this is certainly does not receive enough attention. It's also generally hard to decarbonize for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, I think the thing I'm most excited about in this space are alternative proteins as kind of a modular technology that we could scale in the same way that we scaled, or not in the same, but in a similar way, way that we kind of scaled other modular technologies through kind of public investment. Mm. So, so that's something I'm quite excited about there compared to other opportunities because yeah, that could work quite well obviously we'll only have effects kind of in the 2030s to 2040s but it, to me that seems all right because methane emissions right now like are also not like i guess on the view that i take not not that important right now okay like not reducing methane this decade but reducing it to the 2030s like there's there's less kind of impact cost in that yeah how does working on these hard to decarbonize industries interact with the issue of emission hedging and wanting to focus on the worst case uh, scenarios or the cases where there's lots of emissions? Is there is there an interaction there? 
I mean, there's definitely interaction there, right? So like pretty much irrespectively of what happens, like uh, electric cars, like will kind of replace like combustion engines, et cetera. Mm. So like even in, even in the worlds where international climate policy falls apart, like the air pollution arguments alone are a sufficient reason to kind of push towards electrification, given where we are right now with costs, et cetera. Mm. I think another kind of prominent interaction there is that and hard to decarbonize oftentimes or almost always is kind of about energy density mm. and essentially so it's very strongly correlated with like difficult to electrify so in that sense like um if you kind of think about potential breaking points and the climate response like yeah i think it's kind of that's another interaction there yeah okay and i suppose maybe just the obvious one that was occurring to me but i wasn't putting my finger on it is that you know, in the scenarios where we emit maybe a lot more than we expect those might be worlds where it's just we never figure out how to decarbonize planes or shipping or concrete production or steel it turns out to be really hard and so focusing on finding a way to decarbonize those where we might just never get on a trajectory of doing so is more concentrated on the worst world potentially that's exactly right so like it's a disproportionate share of like future emissions in a particular and unlike and like bad worlds yeah like that that's right yeah what about efforts to campaign against coal and other things that produce a lot of particulate matter that's really bad for people's health you know efforts to campaign against them on the basis that you know air, air pollution is killing people yeah so i think this has actually been a quite successful part of climate philanthropy it's also like a well-funded part of climate philanthropy so like bloomberg philanthropies is very active in this space um this is one of the major ways that like American and European donors have engaged kind of philanthropically outside the OECD. So in that sense, like I think it's something that has clearly worked. It's clearly well funded. So it's not something I guess I would put additional dollars in right now, but that's clearly been quite effective. Yeah, I wonder, this might, uh, might be one where maybe there are some countries where that message hasn't gone out, but there is a lot of air pollution and people could be upset about it and maybe could be coordinated to help pass regulations around about particulate pollution. Yeah, so and I think that the like the plausible candidate for that would be Southeast Asia. So that's mm. that's actually something that we might look into more later in the year. We looked at this a little bit once kind of when when Volantri kind of went into air pollution and I was kind of interested in air pollution and like the intersection with climate. Mm. And it seems in generally true that like India and China are relatively well funded in the space right now. I mean, India kind of cont- partially contingent on open philanthropy. And about that there's kind of, I guess, the Southeast Asian countries that are less in terms of population, but also like, I guess, maybe sometimes a bit forgotten philanthropically, um, because yeah. when everyone thinks about Asia, they think about India and China. <laughs> yeah, um, right. so, so I think that's maybe the, the most plausible region to focus on with that kind of philanthropy. Okay, yeah. What about research into geoengineering to you know reduce the temperature of the Earth directly by potentially, I guess, reducing how much of the sun actually gets past the clouds and, and into the atmosphere? Yeah, so I think this is something we have not funded traditionally. And I think, you know, sometimes having conversations with people working in the space, but I think in general, it seems to me, especially how given how much better the climate outlook is becoming, like the case for that is kind of becoming weaker. And also it seems hard to find very robust philanthropic actions we can take now to like improve outcomes. Because like, I guess many philanthropic actions will increase the probability of this happening, which is unclear whether this would be good like whether this would actually mm. happen or not in a good kind of political context etc so like it's something i've kind of been staying away from so far yeah okay and then finally uh, what about attempts to make it easier to deploy solar panels and, and wind turbines by stopping nimbys from uh you know uh, using zoning or other regulations to prevent people from getting building permits to, to put them down yeah that's a very big problem that goes beyond uh, solar and wind want to fix this 
Um, I think it's kind of one of the most plausible ways that kind of the American response or the American momentum could fail, that now there's a lot of money, but there's no ability to actually build stuff. Mm. Uh, so this seems important to work on more. Something kind of on the list to look into more. It's, I'm not super, super sure. Don't have super sure what views are now on how this looks with regards to philanthropic neglectedness, because on some level, it's also quite obvious that this is a really big problem. So, yeah. Okay. Maybe let's return now to some of the actual grants that you've made, and we can kind of bring together all of the all of the above ideas in order to explain why it is that you're uh, excited about them. Sound good? Yeah, no, that sounds very good. It makes a lot of sense because, like, in general, like, the reason we're excited about grants is usually kind of a combination of a lot of the different reasoning or the lot of different arguments we've already talked about. Brilliant. So let's, let's bring it all together. Yeah, what about the Clean Air Task Force? Yeah, so like for the Clean Air Task Force, we actually like made a couple of, of different grants to them. The first one, I think I've already mentioned at the top, so like one with three like from the Climate Fund was kind of focused on the Biden window kind of coming into, well, come out like in late 2020, kind of trying to influence the innovation response in the US. And yeah, we're excited about that for reasons I think we've discussed essentially the Clean Air Task Force shifting this bill in a direction that is kind of more and more useful for global decarbonization focused on earlier stage stuff, focused on more neglected stuff, stuff like industrial decarbonization, hydrogen, super hot rock, advanced nuclear, etc. So that's the reason to be excited about that, given the large leverage that the US has there. So that was kind of our first ground to look in your task force. We then kind of, because we were anticipating that the American situation will become more crowded and also that the leverage there will decrease because obviously Biden is kind of facing the same fate as every president kind of with the midterms. Um, so we've been kind of invested kind of in a, in a CATF globalization grant, which goes kind of very much focused on supporting the organization to become a more global organization that can kind of work on carbon lock-in essentially in, in China, India, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. Mm. So trying to essentially build a more robust response to those problems. I would have thought that it would be very hard to have a U.S. advocacy organization uh, trying to influence policy in China uh, and maybe even India as well, because uh, as I understand, India has become more hostile to foreign influence and philanthropy uh, this way. Is that an issue? So, I mean, this is definitely an issue. And like, I mean, when we're so like when we're funding this, I mean, this is very much focused on them building like local local teams and having like uh, local local leaders, and local staff, because like um, even if it's not as restricted as China, India, they credibility and having like local understanding of the context is important so it's not about um exporting an american organization having like american american leads for all of those regions mm. yeah but in general this is this uh this is definitely um a problem it's definitely harder also to to make rounds um in those regions uh it requires more effort but yeah we're also kind of yeah, made more grounds and in the space right so we just made a grant in china kind of partially also motivated by the fact that because it's harder, it's also kind of more neglected. So, how about the grants in China? Uh, what was the yeah? What, what was the reasoning there? Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of like different reasons there, but like, so I guess first of all, China is obviously like a really large emitter, right? It's like something like 25 percent or so of like future emissions, and obviously, it's also like a major provider of clean technology. So, like, it's really, really important region for how climate goes. At the same time, it's something like six percent or so of global climate philanthropy so there's fairly little philanthropic intention there and also i mean the ground that we made there part of it is kind of focused on repowering with the clear and so this is something that uh even though it's like the six percent of kind of global climate philanthropy focus there but probably otherwise um, 
not fund or very unlikely to fund because like most time philanthropists in China are generally more traditionally focused on, on solar and wind advocacy. So that was kind of the reason like high additionality and like having a shot at addressing like a really, really critical problem and addressing it in a way that's kind of different than like the high innovation abhorred Western technology kind of thing that will not work for China, but really rather trying to essentially increase the probability that China will do that by themselves with their own reactor, etc. So I think that's kind of a big part of the motivation there. Yeah. Is there a, a, another grant that you haven't mentioned yet that would be good to illustrate all, all the ideas here? Um, I think another kind of set of grants that I'd like to mention is kind of small catalytic grants to kind of grow organizations. So we did this with TerraPraxis in 2020. We kind of did this with future clean tech architects in Germany in 2021. And essentially, I think what we're finding, and we kind of, I mean, we first found this with the Clean Air Task Force, which we were supporting at a later stage, but still kind of really changed the trajectory of this organization. And we find this in general to be like something like really effective, like if you're investing in an early stage uh, organization, because those are the organizations that are not able to kind of profit from the large amounts of money in climate philanthropy as is. So kind of giving them initial grants can be quite powerful. At the same time, it's kind of lower risk than it looks because in general, there is kind of a lot of money in climate philanthropy. So like if, once those organizations are growing, you can kind of be relatively confident that they will be able to continue to grow. And that's obviously like an important strategy. Like, I mean, it's a kind of a field building strategy to kind of have an impact, a larger impact as a smaller funder. Yeah. Okay. Moving on from that, what's most challenging about the work that you do? What's, what's most challenging about your role? I think a couple of things. <laughs> it's often very challenging. I think methodologically speaking, like the challenge is really we're in a space, we're in a high uncertainty space. Right now I talk a lot about uncertainty and like this is just really crucial. Like we're not in the like give well RCT style evidence kind of world. We're in the world where like it seems very plausible that there are like decades spending mechanisms that we can make more likely, et cetera. Like very uncertain space and we kind of need to navigate this with methodology build the methodology because that's not something for which we have like existing methodology per se so i think that's kind of one piece i think the other piece that's challenging us i mean i've talked about this like climate overall is like a very crowded space mm. so if you're trying to like make the most additional impact you essentially have to look for the blind spots of the mainstream response which like means like you have to say unpopular things or fund unpopular things that's kind of i mean it's not that I like being a contrarian by, by <laughs> nature, but I guess if, if I engage in climate, like that's kind of what I need to do, I think, if I kind of try to find like how can we actually de-risk the response, reduce the kind of expected climate damage, et cetera. So I guess that's another thing that's, I guess, can be challenging, right? Because it's like you're very much hedging against uh, the mainstream response. Yeah, right, yeah. I guess if you're not at least a little bit controversial or yeah, not making some contrarian bets, then you kind of already lost from the outset. Yeah, if if I guess so, so, you're mostly offering your advice to people who uh, have made um, the giving pledges. Is, is that right? Oh, they're they're the main audience for your work. No, that's not right. So, like the Founders Pledge Climate Fund is public, so people can donate. It's like the top option for climate from giving what we can, so you can donate there or every dot org. It's uh, completely open to the public and very intentionally so because it's an opportunity for small individuals essentially to act like strategic climate philanthropists to use all of the benefits of kind of an advised fund. Yeah. Yeah, if, if a significant climate donor listened to this and was uh, impressed with your work, um, yeah, should should they get in touch or should they just, just make a deposit basically to the climate fund? Um, I mean, not everyone will give to the climate fund. Obviously, like, <laughs> we're encouraging this. And we think it's like a very, very high impact option because it kind of, yeah, allows pooling, allows grants and geographies that one otherwise has no access to, et cetera. 
but obviously like we're very interested in uh, being in touch with larger funders uh, so like yeah they, they can reach out and like we're growing right now we're kind of growing we're tripling at the capacity of the climate research team that we're not doing this primarily or we're not only doing this because of the directly advice money from founders slash but mm. we're also doing this because we think there's like a need to do more analysis and we also see and we continue to see that like this kind of analysis is potential to steer larger amounts of money that's very much part of the mission yeah okay so i guess until this point we've mostly been focused on money and grant making because you're involved with the, the climate fund and, and advising uh, major donors and trying to do the philanthropy side but technically eighty thousand hours is a careers advice organization so uh, we, we should also take a take a moment to think about careers advice and uh, ways that that might be different what are the main differences between the advice you gave about money uh, above and uh, you know, what kind of organizations you might make grants to uh, and what people might need to think about if they're planning out a career and trying to do as much as they can to prevent the damage of climate change yeah, so I think this is actually a really interesting question. I gave this a little bit of thought, but I think like the key thing that jumps to mind directly is uh, if, I, if I follow like the research of 80,000 hours directly, right, where it kind of says like most of your impact is kind of in your like mid-30s or later. Is that a rough, roughly correct summary of your research? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's going to vary a ton between people and what area they're, they're working in. But I think that for many people that often is the case because you can have more impact when you're, when you're more senior and have been yeah. promoted for longer and have more yeah. skills, yeah. So, so like, let's say this is true in expectation, right? So, like, mm. then if you're kind of thinking about this and, like, you're, let's say you're now, like, 22. And so, so like, by 2035, let's say, like, by 2035, like, what is the impact to be had in climate? And I, I guess I generally take the view that impact in climate or, like, effectable impact in climate is kind of going down rather steeply because of the two mechanisms I kind of mentioned before. Like, on the one hand, kind of essentially uh, technological innovation kind of locking out high carb on the other hand kind of carb lock and so i think one should be on the margin more skeptical of kind of starting a career in climate that will only kind of pay off in like 10 years uh, compared to giving money in climate now so i think that's kind of an important and like possibly underappreciated consideration because like even if you think climate change is quite important you probably still yeah want to take this into account Interesting. Okay. The thinking here is that climate change is being progressively solved and maybe the best opportunities to shift the trajectory are closing. And, you know, maybe, you know, it was better 10 years ago than it is today and it's better now than it will be in 10 years time and, and so on. So that suggests if, if you think that you won't be able to make much difference for, for decades, then that's an argument against setting out in the first place. And I suppose if you were definitely going to work on climate change, it's a reason to be a bit more near-termist and think about, well, what, what can I potentially accomplish earlier in my career rather than leaving it until much later is, is that right yeah that's right and that's obviously like an expectation argument right because mm. like i mean Greta Thunberg obviously didn't heed that expectation and she was <laughs> like right not to but like an expectation uh, i think that seems true yeah um, yeah it feels like uh, there's an interaction here with the you know risk management mission hedging thing where you might want to think about your career in terms of well in 10 or 20 or 30 years time, what would the world look like and what would the world need if we're not on track to solve climate change? Like maybe the most likely scenario is that in 20 years time, we'll be uh, feeling pretty good about, about our prospects. But I want to imagine, yeah, what skills will I wish that I had or what thing will I wish that I had been looking into if in fact we end up in one of the worst cases? Yeah, no, actually that seems right. That's interesting. I haven't thought about this before, but that seems right. And I guess we'll probably push you towards thinking about this quite a bit more. Obviously, like, there's got to be lots of climate jobs in the 2030s, right? So, like, in that sense, there's there's mm. always other considerations, but it just seems like if you're thinking very much on the 80,000 hours mold of, like, counterfactual impact, yeah. Yeah. You want to probably also hedge, hedge with your career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I guess, yeah, we, we have our uh, climate change problem profile <laughs> on our website if people are interested to, to look at the advice that we potentially have for people there. Are there any fields or, you know, any approaches that seem more starved for talent and suitable staff than they are starved for funding and, and, and grants? Is there any, any difference there? So um, I've actually asked this question to, to the charity because I'm not generally looking into this very much myself, kind of asked like what, how they perceive the talent landscape. Mm. Like, I guess one thing that's a recurring theme is like when something is not sexy, it's probably like uh, more talent constrained, right? So, mm. like, I think the example there, like, someone compared like, well, electric car industry right now obviously attracts a lot of talent. And like, something like cement, what we talked about, concrete or like high temperature heat, et cetera, is like a lot less sexy. So, I think kind of your impact focus does probably those areas to kind of focus more on. Yeah. Another response I got was kind of focused on this issue of, Essentially, we're now moving into a stage where a lot of climate progress depends on like working with institutions and kind of understanding what the real constraints are, et cetera. So like having expertise and policy or like an, an actual like decision making processes that this kind of stuff is like very useful. But yeah, these are very, very tentative ideas and they're not really comparative to budget. I think no one has done this analysis as far as I can see. Okay, yeah. Is there any other advice you'd want to give uh, someone, a listener in the audience who is thinking about spending their career on, on climate change? Well, I think one thing that I've thought about recently in, the, in this way, and it's like if you're kind of thinking about this from a hedging perspective of like wanting to be able to work on different causes, etc. Like if you kind of say like, do you think maybe you want to work on that, on climate in 2030s, or maybe you want to switch to another cause then if kind of climate appears to be mostly solved. And I guess that kind of pushes me towards thinking like working in government or working in contexts where like most of the transferable skill is kind of working with a kind of factor rather than like a content specific knowledge that this could be better or could be a consideration. Yeah. All right. So um, let's push on and return to the topic that I uh, said we would eventually get to at the, at the very start of the conversation. So yeah, we've mostly been we've almost exclusively focused on preventing climate change, assuming that that's what you want to do. Uh, but yeah, lots, lots of listeners are super interested to hear your views on how big a risk climate change is uh, relative to their impressions of that, or I guess relative to you know what, what, what they hear in the, in the media. Um, yeah, what, what do you think listeners might not already know about the importance of working uh, to reduce climate change relative to, to, to other issues that they could think about? Yeah, okay. I think like there's there's maybe two ways to look at climate if you kind of look at this from a like near-termist current generations angle. And I think something that's generally quite underappreciated is that how tidally uh, solving climate change, at least like the energy part, which is like 80% of it, is like connected to other really pressing moral concerns, in particular reducing energy poverty on the one hand, mm. lifting people out of energy poverty, but also kind of reducing air pollution, which right now is killing like six to seven million people every year. So if you kind of think about like the importance of say the cost is clean energy abundance rather than climate, like mm. you kind of can maybe triple the importance of it easily. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, something that's underappreciated and especially relevant for like near-termist prioritization. I think for the long-termist view, like if you kind of think about climate primarily as a catastrophic risk or an existential risk, I think like, I'm not sure whether that's underappreciated, but like I think that the meat there is really in terms of like indirect risk and kind of, yeah, follow-through effects that are kind of hard to model and hard to reason about, you know? Mm. 
to your first point there was uh, if you're thinking about you know what would make the world a better place over the next 50 years uh, or something like that then uh, focusing on producing pollution-free energy is potentially way more useful than, than people think because it's not just about climate change it's also about air pollution which is you know uh, on a similar order of magnitude of of uh, a problem uh, and sorry what was the what was the third uh, reason that you gave Energy poverty, overcoming energy ah. poverty. So like one of the strongest correlates of like economic growth is whilst having more energy, right? And the mm. connection was like not ca- like not necessarily causal, but like while it's clear like you cannot have a prospering world without much more energy, you know, it's also clear that like energy is generally like quite helpful. And like so, so in that sense, like creating a situation where where energy would like cheap and abundant would be like really much bigger than the climate uh, intent. Yeah, interesting. And and so uh, the, the idea would be, well, if we could come up with better energy technologies that were cheaper and, you know, you could put in a wider range of locations and that could be fantastic for developing countries that are, that are very poor because they could just, they could find ways of producing much more energy more cheaply than is, than is currently possible. Yeah, and more cleanly. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. Okay. And then on the long-termist or the more, uh, you know, risk management uh, side where we're thinking about, you know, worst case scenarios for humanity as a species or ways that uh, this could have really long-lasting uh, implications. You were saying the thing that people should be focusing on here is not, you were saying it's indirect effects. So it's not that climate change itself, you know, storms and droughts and so on are going to be the main way that humanity gets done in by climate change. It's uh, going to be in, uh, like that it prompts wars or prompts other indirect effects that then uh, kind of have flow on implications for humanity as a whole. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I think there's probably pretty broad agreement that that's kind of the majority of the like, long-termist kind of concern around climate. I think there's probably quite a lot of disagreement of like how likely those things are but i think it's probably clear that like those like societal destabilization conflict risk etc are like the, the the dominant kind of concern yeah yeah okay yeah I, we, we had a couple of listeners questions about that exactly so has johannes thought about climate as a conflict trigger my current impression is that people gesture at climate induced migration and resource shortages around food and water as potentially causing serious wars yeah what was the likelihood of this and what would examples of potential scenarios look like yeah. So like the funny thing is that my, my first job was actually building a database on climate and conflict. All right. Uh, so we thought about this quite a lot. I think in general, my view is that this is epistemically, like in terms of what we can know about this, like a very bad situation mm. because there's like, I mean, it's like a, it's a bad situation to have knowledge about in the first place because it's a very much about indirect causal chains. Like it's kind of hard to know about to begin with. And it's also like, a fairly politicized kind of field of science because they're like clear motivated reasoning in both directions mm. so like i find i find it really hard to come to a conclusion there because they, you know like there are always people i mean people that make this argument about syria which has been mostly like about the syrian civil war kind of being the result of climate which has been mostly defined by other people so like yeah i, I think i'm fairly skeptical on our ability to narrow the uncertainty bars here mm. So you were building a database looking at conflicts that people said were influenced by climate changes. Is that right? Uh, well, like this was environmental changes more broadly, right? Yeah. And did you learn something about the difficulty of, of attributing <laughs> any particular conflict to any particular cause? Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, essentially, I mean, this was like a public facing tool. This was like, this was made for diplomats. Mm. But like what we essentially ended up in was like having like, I think we had a model of like, on a causal graph of 30 different arrows mm. and usually five-step causal chains, right? And like, once you're kind of in that space, then like, yeah, then you, things get very uncertain. Yeah, right. And always multi-causal, right? I mean, that's the other, other aspect of it. Yeah. 
I suppose, yeah, intuitively, I'm kind of skeptical of the idea that climate change would cause a lot of wars, I suppose, especially great power wars. Because, I, I mean, I just think about the obvious ones would be basically China, Russia, the United States, uh, maybe, maybe India at some point in future. I'm like, why would China and the US be like significantly more likely to go to war or Russia and the US because of climate change? Just the, the stories that people tell about that don't seem that intuitively plausible. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously, this isn't my area. But I do sometimes worry that there's a certain vagueness in the in, in, in the thinking here that is allowing people to uh, see risks where maybe if they tried to spell it out like more more specifically, it, it wouldn't wouldn't seem so likely. I agree with this. Yes, I think something interesting here between like how long termists think about this and other people think about this, right? Like, I guess we're giving a very special importance to great power war. Mm. Whereas, like, I think the thing you probably should worry about more from a climate risk perspective is, like, civil strife, etc. Like, mm. these kind of wars, which are on current technology, like, unlikely to be catastrophic. I think the thing I probably worry about the most on this angle would be something like essentially having a situation of, like, large global grievances. So, essentially, like, a large perception that the world is, like, pretty untested, that, like, essentially there's a lot of climate damage in poor countries and... Um, combining this with like very available uh, destructive technologies. If you think like bio risk is a problem because like everyone can have like a massively powerful bio weapon, then I think you should worry more than under current technologies about like having a generally <laughs> happy world. Yeah, I, I see. Because uh, just any conflict could end up being catastrophic if weapons get sufficiently powerful, if people are motivated to use them. That's the idea. Yeah, I think the idea would be like the reason that we right now prioritize this great power war is because those are the only ones that are really like catastrophically mm. risky. But that is a function of the fact that like right now the only really powerful weapon we have are nuclear weapons that are not available to the to the poorest countries in the world. Yeah, that does seem like a potentially potentially good point. I suppose if any civil war is going to be catastrophic for all of humanity, then <laughs> we're in a very very bad situation. Uh, it's going to be hard to create complete peace globally uh, any any anytime soon. Yeah, I guess to, to get the climate change and, and conflict people there due, I, I think a model that they often have in, in, in their mind, which I guess actually I'm kind of sympathetic to, is just that the world is this like super chaotic, unstable place where cause and effect is constantly ricocheting around everywhere. And maybe you think it's the case that the Syrian civil war wasn't in fact prompted by climatic changes. But let's say that it had been, and then that kind of causes a migration crisis, and then that causes uh, you know a conflict between different countries that are squabbling over who's how to deal with the with that crisis, and it causes maybe the conflict in Syria then uh, bleeds over into Iraq, and so. You know, any specific story that you might try to tell about how things really fall apart because of climate change might not sound super plausible. But just the, the fact that bad things seem to prompt more other bad things on uh, quite regularly should maybe give us pause about just, just anything that's making the world rougher and harder to survive in should, um, <laughs> should, should be troubling. Yeah, I think that is basically my view. And I think it's kind of, I think, the, like the reason, I think, mostly to prioritize climate from, from a long-termers perspective. Hmm the climate change and long-term result report that like john halstead wrote hmm. uh, and then like the debate around this i think was pretty much focused on that that kind of john was kind of coming from their perspective of like okay here is the direct observable evidence and like direct causal effects and then i guess there is a from my perspective really plausible critique of that which is like saying okay well we're having a lot of indirect unforeseeable effects and kind of generally a situation of decreasing uh political kind of stability negative feedback loops I think the thing I would say there, though, is like all of that kind of requires pretty severe climate impact still, right? So like the fact that 
the climate picture overall has been getting so much better makes all of those things well, less likely to be like honest about that. Yeah. Okay. Setting aside the the indirect effects, do you have any view on kind of the plausibility or probability of of, of runaway climate change that kind of directly causes a, a, a ton of harm? So if we're kind of thinking about this in terms of like direct, like if we meet with this direct runaway extinction, geophysical kind of extinction event, I think the probability of that is like, I think really, really low at this point. I mean, just because like the high emission scenarios where this becomes more likely have become so much less likely. I and mean, then I think it kind of was already quite unlikely to begin with. So I don't remember the exact probabilities from, from Neil, you know, Bauerman's presentation on that, but like. I think compared to to when he gave a presentation, I think three or four years ago, the climate picture, the emission picture, has improved so much that like it's probably become an order of magnitude less likely compared to that. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I suppose. Yeah, from one point of view, you might be seen to be playing down how bad uh, climate change is here. But part of what you're saying is that because we did all of this stuff uh, because we were worried about climate change you know 10 20 30 years ago it's because of that that the picture has become less catastrophic and we don't have to worry about these apocalyptic scenarios quite so much and and of course if we hadn't done anything at all and if no one was doing anything more now then we really would be in a very very troubling situation but i guess on the margin because you know people have woken up and many many countries are making uh, some meaningful contribution to solving the problem we don't we don't necessarily have to stress that uh, you know human extinction is going to be caused by this yeah i think that seems right i mean being clear about where we are with regards to our climate response right now i think it's not only important for like cost prioritization uh, and i also think it's not so clear what this means for cost prioritization because there's always also this leverage argument which kind of goes with the other way but I think it's also really important for like taking the right lessons kind of in our climate response because like a lot of the climate movement or young climate people are like very fatalistic saying like we make no progress at all, et cetera, which is like mm. entirely untrue and kind of like the solution or like a big part of the solution kind of lies in plain sight with like, okay, what we've done, we've been able to do with solar, wind, electric cars. We need to do this for this product set of technologies, but for that, we need to be able to recognize that we're actually able to kind of make meaningful global change and, and actually quite quite reasonably doable steps. Yeah. We're almost out of time. I suppose, yeah, one, one thing I wanted to add in on, on this question of, yeah, climate change versus other issues that someone could work on is that climate change really seems to stand out very strongly on solvability and tractability. I mean, we've just been talking about, about so many different angles, all of which seem somewhat promising. And kind of we, we have such a smorgasbord of options that it's more a matter of finding, well, what is the cool thing that people aren't already doing? I guess, yeah, if I was going to go and work on climate change, I think it would be something around, yeah, the fact that it seems so solvable and there's so many concrete things that you can get on board with. And that not only does it benefit people down the line, but also it would have these big benefits, as you're pointing out, to potentially to economic development and to air pollution and quality of life and science and technology more broadly. Um, yeah, d- does that resonate? That resonates, right? That resonates totally. And I think for me, this is also, I mean, if we kind of look at yeah, any cost prioritization as, a, as it stands right now, it's a little bit the under under theorized dimension if I kind of think about like how EAs generally think about climate kind of saying, okay, it's kind of less important as an existential risk than other existential or catastrophic risks. I agree with that. I guess the, the interesting question really is like how much of a how much of a difference does the tractability make? Because like for climate, we really know what we do, uh, what we can do. So I would really love to kind of see a more systematic comparison there. And like, yeah, tractability is certainly or solvability is certainly the the argument uh, in favor of prioritizing climate over other areas. And I also want to be very clear that I'm like not a climate maximalist. My argument is not like the A community should do five times as much climate work. I think like it's important for 
doing smart climate work, but like, yeah, I'm just, yeah, yeah. that's pretty much not my argument. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. It's fantastic whenever someone can work in an area and not become really uh, narrow-mindedly uh, thinking that it's like necessarily the most important thing just because uh, they happen to be involved with it. Your, 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 your impartiality uh, and objectivity is, is much appreciated. I guess, yeah, on, on this theme of how there's so many, so many cool things to potentially get in, involved with, uh, with climate change, uh, my, my, my final question is, yeah, if you had to go and work on some more object level climate change project rather than doing this high level research, um, yeah, which, which, which one do you think you might choose? Well, I mean, I think I would probably, um, I never thought about this. Um, <laughs> I was, I think I'm probably pretty interested in like being like an innovation policy, uh, policymaker. Uh, I think that would probably, yeah, pretty interesting. Um, Yes, but I'm actually really happy to be in the strategic space where I'm, where I'm right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm having fun about that. I feel like you're slightly cheating there because that sounds like another sort of research role. <laughs> uh, I suppose, yeah. Is, is there any kind of engine? Like, let's say that you had to become an engineer, uh, Johannes. What, what, uh, what, uh, what uh, kind of uh, technology would you like to be working on? Um, wow, you've never thought about this. Or you don't, you don't think about that. it in terms of what Robert, stuff is really cool. I've, I've, decided, I've, I've decided I'll not become an engineer when I sucked at physics okay. like 15 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> this was too far out of my mental overton window. Maybe it's best that you not think about this because it ensures that you're not uh, too, uh, too starstruck or what, what, what's the term? You're not like uh, guided by, by whatever technology seems, seems most exciting and most cool, like, uh, I don't know, rockets or nuclear fusion or whatever. Um, yeah, maybe it says something about you that, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you don't want to answer this question. You're not that into the romance of it. You just, <laughs> just want to think about what is most useful. Yeah. Cool. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Johannes Lakva. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours uh, podcast, uh, Johannes, for this uh, epic three hour session without a break. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been uh, longer than Lord of the Rings. Thank you. <laughs> not, not the extended edition, though. As I mentioned in the intro, Johannes and Founders Pledge are currently hiring researchers for their climate-focused grant-making program, and they think that listeners to this show are unusually likely to be a good fit for the role. They're open to people at varying levels of experience who are keen to work on climate with an impact-oriented lens, uh, pushing forward the research agenda that Johannes and I were just talking about uh, and turning it into action via grant-making. They add in the job ad that you'll be working autonomously to delve into climate research from investigations into the existing landscape to funding investigations into individual organizations, as well as shallow investigations of relevant methodological questions. They're open to hiring people in the UK, as well as Europe or the United States, and salaries would vary from $95,000 to $120,000, depending on how much experience you have. Head over to the job ad if you want to learn more about that. There's a link to it in the blog post associated with this episode, of course, uh, or you could also make it there via founderspledge.com slash careers. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. 